everybody. Welcome to another episode of uh, collaboration, I should say. Sorry, I don't know where my brain's at. It's a collaboration between Comic Source and Comic Boom. As usual, our DC Weekly Spotlight for the week of September 13th, 2022. Some solid books this week. Nothing really blew me away. I don't really feel like this is a week with big books. But there are some solid books. So overall, I thought it was okay. What do you think, Rocky? Uh, well, I agree with you. Uh, overall, well, there's one book in particular where there's finally, uh, I think, what some fans have been crying for uh, with with some reminiscent and some nostalgia callbacks to rebirth, rebirth. A big one with Batman v Robin. We'll be get we'll be spoiling that. Uh, heads up, we, all, we this is always a spoiler review. Uh, but overall, I, I thought it was uh, actually more of an underwhelming week, uh, to be honest with you. There was only, uh, uh, frankly, if I'm honest, there was only one that really that I really enjoyed, and that was the Batman versus Robin. The other ones were were okay, but nothing there, nothing that really hit home for me. But uh, we'll get into it. Yeah, I agree. Um, but you're right. I mean, there there is a big return this week kicking off a big story. You mentioned it, Batman versus Robin. Mark Wade had a little bit of a different feel and uh, yeah, we'll get to it at some point. And yeah, big, big, big spoilers. So just be prepared for that. So we'll kick it off with uh, for uh, future state Gotham. We're up to issue number 17. I can't believe we're in 17 issues of this thing. Um, it won't you know, die. You can argue, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, can ar- you can argue whether or not, you know, it, it's worthy of 17 issues or not. Uh, at, I will say this, it does feel like it's reaching some sort of climax, some sort of conclusion. Yes. I know there's been about a thousand different Batman, uh, recently in the story. We talked about how difficult it is on top of, uh, all the moving parts. The fact that it's black and white, it's not in color. Sometimes it can make it hard to differentiate. I will give Jeffo and Giannis Milano, Giannis, some credit for doing the best they can with black and white. Uh, it's written by Dennis Culver. And, uh, you know, other than that art we, by those two that I already mentioned, Troy Pateri does the letters. That That's basically it. So with Damien having returned from hell and having these magic powers uh, recruited by Hush, who once again has used uh, plastic surgery to make himself look like Bruce. Then you've got Jace Fox as Batman and we'll, We'll leave alone the fact that in this story, he's very recently Batman when it's, you know, decades in the future as opposed to the story going on now. And I am Batman where he's also newly uh, Batman and how that can be. Yeah. He can't be new in both, but whatever. Um, but you've got Jace Fox. You've got uh, a, a Nightwing who's been sort of, corrupted, if you will, um, as well as boosted by this brain drug, which is basically the mental version of venom, um, what venom does for the body, brain does for your mind. So, you know, we've got those two Batman, plus we've got the original Bruce back, plus we've got uh, this hush, this future hush, all claiming to be Batman, and everything's coming to a head with uh, Red Hood, who's been pretending to work for the magistrate, but now has kind of revealed that he's always been working for the Bat family all along. We've got Bar- Barbara Gordon um, back as Batgirl, but looking young and spry as ever, which also doesn't make sense considering, uh, you know, her age. So that can be problematic. But you've, you've got all these Bat 
members of the family and they're all we're all looking to who is the big bad we've known for a while as readers that the big bad is hush the damien return is sort of surprising in a lot of ways but it does tie into things that we've seen uh, previously in batman urban legends as well as other hints and other stories and anthologies of damien basically becoming a bad guy um in some point in the future, Batman 666, they call him. I guess it sort of ties into his history and his legacy, the fact that he's, you know, the grandson of the demon, Ra's al Ghul. Um, but it also sort of feels like really low-hanging fruit. And, you know, Rocky and I have both talked about what a great job Joshua Williamson has done with maturing Damian Wayne in the Robin series and making him um, just a more – interesting character in a lot of ways, a little bit more of a complex character, a character that's shown growth. I don't think that Williamson ever did this thinking I need to make Damien a more likable character. Um, I think that a lot of Damien fans like the fact that he's kind of a jerk and he says things that are completely um, irrespective of other people's feelings. He comes across as a, a brat to me. Um, more of Bratman than than Batman. Um, I don't find it amusing. I don't find it funny. Um, I, I, it, to me, it just makes it means you're not a very good person. Like in turn, you don't have integrity. You don't have dignity when you're constantly putting others down. But again, Williamson's done a great job of maturing him out of that. So to me, based on that, this once again is a future that's not likely to come to pass unless. Something horrible happens to Damien, and I don't want it to because, again, I don't find that this petty uh, Damien who puts people down to be a very interesting character. I'm much more like the Damien who's a bit more conflicted based on what his original upbringing was versus what Bruce has brought to his life. Uh, and, he, you know, he's matured. He's taken much more of a, a leadership role, especially on Lazarus Island. That's more interesting to me. So how you reconcile that Damien with the Damien we have here, I don't know, other than to say somebody over at DC decided that, hey, we need to keep on with this defunct timeline that's not going to come to pass. So, you know, despite the sales on this book being, I guess, halfway decent enough for it to go 17 issues, I just really don't understand why this is continuing. Um, and we, we've talked about it and, and, you know, kind of ad nauseum at this point of you know why this thing is existing why is it black and white who are they trying to appeal to they don't really care what we think obviously because it's going to keep going but i really think even in the interest of of who bruce wayne is as a character and who damien is as a character like this needs wrap it up already this needs to end we really need to wrap this up because is it entertaining yeah it's mildly entertaining it's mildly interesting but i don't think any of that uh, outweighs I, the long-term harm it can do to these characters in my mind. Um, and, and not to mention the confusion, the continuity that it can, huh. I mean, if you're trying to pull in new readers, <laughs> readers that are more into manga and, and anime and whatnot, and that's why you're going black and white. And that's why you're going with this art style. I guess I can kind of see that, but again, um, this is completely outside of continuity. And to me, it's not, um, that's not overt overtly enough stated because what happens if you do pull in somebody new on this and they read it and then they go try to, to get started on the regular bat titles or the regular DCU 
they're going to be like, wait, what? Why is this completely different? I'm forget it. I'm not going to bother. So if that's their, their thought process, again, I think they might be doing themselves more harm than good. So yeah. Is it mildly entertaining? Yes. Uh, am I interested to see how it, how it wraps up? Yeah. Kinda. Does it need to be over? Absolutely. So I don't know if you have anything to add. I, I know you've kind of struggled <laughs> to even uh, well, stay I would, on. I would just say that uh, again, there's too many Batman in the story. There's too many Batman. The story is just not very good. I find it. I find it uh, unnecessarily confusing. Uh, although, in fairness, sure, when I I did actually reread, I read this one better than I have in the previous ones. So I can distinguish between the characters when I put a little bit of effort into it. And to be honest, uh, Dennis Culver, who really took over the writing chores here, I think the guy does know how to handle more than one character. Unfortunately, when you're handling a bunch of Batman characters. I don't, I don't like when there's more than one Batman. I never have. Batman is special, but he's not special anymore and he hasn't been for 10, 15 years. And, and I just, I, I really wish that DC would be moving back to having Batman special, but they're not. They're moving forward, creating more legacy. And he's got more Robins and fa- more Robins and, and, and sons and, and daughters than, 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 than anyone could ever hope to have in, in a couple of lifetimes. And it's, I mean, I say that it, somewhat tongue in cheek, but it's, I guess it is what it is. That's not Dennis Culver's fault, fault. He knows how to handle the characters. So I think Williamson, he got the gist of it. I just feel that, you know, this was, this is just something where even at the end of this issue, this is the fifth issue of a fi- five issue story arc and it ends with one of the Batman here, Batman 666, Damien being channeling his uh, the spirit of Joe Chill, who was the one that killed the Waynes. Where's that coming from? It just seems out of left field and it just seems really, really odd. And uh, But kind of cool, like you said, there's it, it's kind of some cool concepts here. I just think, man, wouldn't, have been, wouldn't it be so much cooler if some of these concepts of if there was less Batman and it was just streamlined a little bit as a plot and made it a mainstream DCU story as opposed to one that sort of, I think there's some really genuinely maybe fresh and interesting ideas here that Dennis Culver is playing with. I think maybe he should have maybe uh, left some of those uh, arrows in his quiver, so to speak, to, for for a story that would be, I think, more widely read than I, I, I fear that this will. But uh, kudos to Dennis Culver. I, I do think he... You know, I, I think his uh, brighter days are ahead for him, uh, but I, I will give him a for some effort here in terms of uh, writing a probably a, a decent Batman story that deserves to have more attention than it's probably been getting. Yeah, I would agree. That's a that's a fair assessment. So, uh, all right, I don't know how much we're going to talk about this, but uh, Batman Day is coming up this week. It's on the seventeenth. I think that's Friday, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah. And there is a reprint of the first part of Batman Hush, which I can't even remember what what issue that was anymore. I think – I want to say it was Batman 612 maybe? Uh, but anyway, uh, it's a classic story. There's going to be – as there feels like there is every year. They've reprinted the Batman Day Hush like just about every year. Um, this was the, the title that once – DC bought Wildstorm and Jim Lee became part of DC. It was like the monthly title that he, he got back into doing, dedicated himself. Uh, I think it's pro- it's the last time, first time in a long time previous to this, and the last time Jim Lee's been on a monthly title where things came out uh, in a timely fashion. He really dedicated himself to it, kill, almost killed himself uh, <laughs> getting this out on time, uh, and it's still the quality of Jim Lee. Uh, I think the next thing he tried to do monthly was um, – that Superman story that he did with um, with Scott Snyder, 
And if you go back, there were delay, a lot of delays, and you go back and look at the art, and some of the art's just not good, not not what you would expect from from Jim Lee. But anyway, Jeff Loeb is the writer of this. Scott Williams, longtime Jim Lee inker, does the inks. Richard Starkey on letters. Alex Sinclair on colors. Um, yeah, it, it, the other thing about this is it is celebrating. I, th- I think the tenth anniversary of of Hush. Right or is it the twentieth? It's probably the twentieth. It's pretty. It's a yeah, long it's time. the twentieth anniversary of of when Hush came out. God, I'm old. We're not that young. Um, I was going to say, man, come on. We're, we're- yeah. <laughs> and and the other part of this uh, of them releasing this issue, uh, in addition to it being Batman Day, there is also an advertisement in the issue. The fact that they are uh, coming out with a new Hush uh, hardcover edition, which again, it, it's not that surprising. Uh, that they're doing that because, again, Hush is one of those evergreen titles that DC always keeps in print because uh, it makes them so much money. Um, but this new Hush collection that's coming out has, for the first time, a new Hush story in terms of a Batman Hush story that ties into this Hush story, uh, which everybody knows. and Not everybody, but most people know. And, and you know, Batman fans, it's a seminal work. Obviously, the character of Hush has had, uh, you know, multiple appearances, many, many appearances in Batman comics and DC comics ever, you know, in the ensuing 20 years. But, yeah, this new collection will have a new story that's uh, basically set in the same time period. So that's uh, something that DC has coming out. So if you're at your comic shop this week, you'll see uh, Hush on on the newsstands. And if you, in case you're wondering, what the heck is this Batman Hush? It's just the first part. <laughs> of a multi-part story that appeared in Batman back in the day and is one of the most popular Batman stories. And it's really good. It's worth reading if you've never read it. I will say a lot of times when people ask me, hey, I'm curious about DC Comics. I want to get started. You know, I'll say, who's your favorite character? If they say Batman, I do point them to Hush as a good way to get into it, um, get into the DCU. Because one of the good, great things about Batman Hush that Loeb did, you know, other than the great Jim Lee artwork, but Loeb, really brought in, even though it's a hush story at its heart, he's the big bad and it features the return of uh, red hood, Jason Todd. Uh, the other thing low did is he really brought in a lot of the classic Batman villains and sort of, they each got their own issue in a way as hush manipulated things to uh, put them in conflict with Batman. But you get, you get a chance to see, Two-Face, you get a chance to see Poison Ivy, you get a chance to see Harley Quinn, you know, you get a chance to see a lot of the Bat villains uh, go up against Batman. And so it's a it's a really good uh, kind of overview of who Batman is in the DCU and how he interacts with the, the rogues gallery. So that, that's one of the things that really works for uh, for Hush. Uh, any thoughts about, about Hush, Rocky? I, I, I've always thought Hush was... I personally have never been particularly impressed with the story of Hush. Uh, I, I, but I view it as some, I own the hardcover of, I own a hardcover of Hush because I love the art. Jim Lee, uh, I, one of the reasons why I'm very, uh, I, I'm ongoing, I'm always frustrated with Jim Lee is that the guy insists on being a corporate guy as opposed to an artist. And he's, he's not, he needs to be an artist more and corporate less. <laughs> Cause I, because I'm, I'm, I'm selfish. I want his, I want his artistry. I want his creative talents. And they don't lie, uh, r- running DC at all, quite frankly. They, they, they lie when he does something 
when a guy can do do his art for charity during uh, COVID and it makes hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, the guy is just a creative genius artistically. And Hush is was him just at his in his A game. And Jeff Loeb uh, was probably one of the better Jeff Loeb stories, even though it wasn't my cup of tea it i mean visually i mean i could just stare at those pages every day so i mean it's definitely a classic i mean so yeah i mean it's 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 good it, it it's something that deserves some recognition and deserves some love uh in on this anniversary yeah i sort of agree with you selfishly i would like more jim lee art as well um but again not if we're going to get what we got in superman unchained because i you know that was not in the regular a regular Superman title. It was a standalone uh, limited series, and I feel like a lot of people over at DC at the time kind of thought, "Hey, this is going to be the sort of Superman version of Hush." Well, Superman Unchained doesn't sell it well and collect it at all. And I think part of the reason is it kind of lost its way with all the delays and whatever. And yeah, that artwork from Jim Lee at times is really rough especially in there's some big multi-page spreads of like the Batcave and Superman's Fortress of Solitude and the background details just so lacking. Um, but again, you know, Jim Lee was, that, that was not so long after launching the new 52. He was super busy with his publisher responsibility. So you can kind of understand it, but yeah, just too much, too much to do for one man to do, honestly, especially when he's got like, I don't know, seven or nine kids or something ridiculous like that. So <laughs> yeah, uh, anyway, let's move on. Up next, we have Batgirls number 10. <laughs> so this is interesting to me. So you're talking about up to 17 issues of Future State Gotham, which is a little bit hard to believe. Then you flip it around to Batgirls 10 and you're like, wait, we're, we're only on issue 10 of this. It feels like it's been going on forever. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's kind of, I guess it's all relative. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it's, it's part two of the new story, uh, Batgirls summer, it's written by Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad. Neil Gouge does the art for this issue. Rico Renzi on colors and uh, Becca Carey on letters. What do you think of this? Well, I, first of all, I, uh, you know, we, we've talked about Batgirls before, and but you know, it's worth it's worth taking a note just at the the covers because if you look at the covers, uh, the uh, uh, the the covers are it just looks like it's for a different age group. I mean, it's it's look for it, it looks like it's for it's written for a preteen crowd, and uh, and and it really truly is written for a preteen crowd, and uh, this issue in particular, uh, it's just you know it's this could this could be uh, an episode of DC Superhero Girls, where Cass and Steph are literally in the library trying to decipher a code. Uh, a cipher, and uh, there's a there's an attractive young man who happens to be the brother of Mags Magazuki from uh, Gotham uh, Gotham Central or whatever the hell it is the uh, Gotham Academy, uh, and 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 meanwhile we have uh, Dick Grayson coming along with, with Babs, and uh, we have uh, Alicia Alicia Yo 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 making an appearance, and then ultimately it being revealed that the bad guy who's created this cipher and his this serial killer is this guy by the name of Mr. Fun because he and he he's kind of like a riddler it's hinted that you know this who's who else what what Batman villain would create a cipher for the Batgirls to figure out you think it'd be the riddler but no it's this apparently it's this Mr. Fun and for, and just thrown in the middle of this comic is suddenly Cass both Batgirls are they see moth 
you know, Mothman in the sky and they're going to go try to take him out and or killer moth. Sorry. <laughs> and I don't even know why I, I actually have, I've lost sight of what this central plot's supposed to be. I guess they're looking for a, a serial killer. Um, and even, even the, the narration, their, the narration is intended to be fun. It's breaking the fourth wall. And, and you can, I get a sense actually that Clunrad, uh, my, uh, Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad. I get, I do get a sense that they're having f- a lot of fun writing this particular comic book. And, and it's just written for a younger crowd. It's not really my cup of tea. But I'd be lying if I said I couldn't see the fun in it. You know, and and that's what we've both kind of said from the beginning. And uh, so it's kind of hit and miss with me. Uh, there's even Renee Montoya in here. This this comic does a really good job of highlighting the, the vibrant and the... Uh, uh, the heroic women in the DC universe, better than Wonder Woman, I might add. This Batgirls does a really good job. We got Barbara Gordon, we got Renee Montoya, we got Cassandra Kane, Steph and and uh, Stephanie Brown, and uh, we've got like love interests, and uh, they've got you got this Alicia Yo, and you have uh, you know them talking about boys and like this is actually like if you're a young woman. And you're into the manga. This is something that might be right up your alley. Even the artistic sensibility of it is, I think, maybe, uh, I think it's, it's Goog, guided by the name of Gouge on the art. Uh, I, it's not bad. It's not bad. But again, it's just, it's not my cup of tea. It doesn't feel like it's really written for me. Uh, but I honestly, I, I, uh, again, it's just not my cup of tea. And I feel we review every DC comic every, every week and so sometimes I feel real kind of bad like if I have a bias that I'm not really a comic book isn't really hitting me I feel kind of bad that I'm the one you know why should I review it I I feel like somebody who's maybe more passionate about these characters or this particular approach maybe would review it so I don't want to take the wind out of anybody's sails and by all means pick this up but I will say Cassandra Cain was my favorite character in the DC universe straight up but this is not my Cassandra Kane. Uh, however, I'm hoping that, you know, there's a, I'm hoping that this version of Cassandra Kane attracts its own, uh, following and loyal, uh, readership, uh, despite, despite my old school, uh, sensibilities. But, uh, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't, I don't think I'm the, you know, the target audience for this, but it is a, a lot of fun and there is kind of a sweetness and an innocence to it. That to me does not reconcile with who Cassandra Kane is and her origins. And, you know, we've talked about that a lot, her being your favorite character, um, in DC and, and them kind of giving us a, almost a Cassandra Kane light here, uh, if you will. There's also a lot of tragedy when you stop and think about Stephanie Brown as a character and her origins, you know, the fact that her father's clue master, super villain, she, she was Robin. At one point, she was killed. I mean, there's a lot of darkness there uh, as well. And then Barbara Gordon, you know, yeah. we see her in this particular issue uh, in a wheelchair. You know, we know that she can walk and it's it's interesting. DC's doing another one of those things. They're trying to have its cake and eat it too. Uh, there was a lot of sort of toxic pushback when DC put her back in the costume in, in the New 52 with a new Batgirl title, Gail Simone writing it. And people were really harsh to Gail online saying, you you know, you ruined Batgirl, the one, you know, uh, character, the hero, the, the, you know, force for good when she was Oracle that was representative of, um, 
people with disabilities and whatever, and just, you know, really letting her have it. And Gail's like, this, this wasn't, you know, my choice at all. Um, so I, I, I don't understand people, honestly, when they think these writers have all this power to, to do whatever. I mean, so many times it comes from a decision higher up and, you know, editorial and they're getting their marching orders from even higher up. And at the end of the day, it's all in the interest of making money. That's all it is. I mean, we haven't even talked much on this podcast, at least about the horrible decisions Warner Brothers Discovery is making. I, just when you think things can get worse for DC Comics, they do uh, because of these stupid, idiotic decisions for these people who, who – but I will say this for Warner Brothers Discovery, at least the head of it now, he comes right out and says it like it is. He says the reason we're canceling all these shows, the reason we're making every decision we make, it all has to do with the bottom line. We're saddled with all this debt from buying DirecTV. I've talked about it in the past at Infinitum. So he, he, he is saying, yes, the reason we're making all these creative decisions has everything to do with making money. So for whatever reason, DC seems to think that the best way to make money off Batgirl, uh, both are all three, Cassandra Kane, Barbara Gordon, and Stephanie Brown is to put them all in this book and really focus on a younger demographic. You know, yep. this is not to me aimed at longtime fans of the Bat family and, and Batgirl because it, how can it be when none of this really reconciles with the characterization of who these characters are, have been in the past, who these characters are in the present in, in other titles when they show up? Yep. Now, we've seen plenty of mention of, of Dick Grayson in, uh, in this particular title. We know in the, the Nightwing title, that uh, Tom Taylor is, you know, writing a story where Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon seem to be, be in a relationship, and it does seem like both the writers of this series, Conrad and Clunan, as well as Tom Taylor, are are pretty careful about not going too far in one direction or another with Barbara Gordon to have something directly contradict, but the characterization does still seem. A much more of a, a mature, um, more complicated, and nuanced Barbara Gordon in the Nightwing title. Here, she's very much a different character. Again, nothing o- overt that you would point out going, oh, sh- that's completely 180 degrees from what she just did in Nightwing the month before. It, they do a you know pretty good job of paying attention, I think, to one another's books, so they don't do that. But it's still a, ver- a version that you wouldn't see. Um, just like these versions of Stephanie Brown and Cassandra Kane, as I said, tend to be like a, a light version of the characters. Now there's nothing inherently wrong with that. And to your point, it can be entertaining, but it does seem to be focused at a, a very different audience and a very different demographic from what we've seen before. Now, all that being said, I do think that it does have a chance to perhaps start to mature a little bit if they, choose to go in that direction. Uh, and a lot of that may have to do with the uh, appearance of uh, Rene Montoya here. We know there's a Rene Montoya sort of Gotham City Police Department miniseries coming up later this year that's going to focus on uh, what Montoya is trying to do as the commissioner of the Gotham City Police Department and how she's sort of trying to rebuild it after you know yeah. Magistrate and Joker War and all those kind of terrible things if they if, 
if this book ties into that closely, that's a that's a very mature book. So if this one ties in closely to that, I would think that you would again, whether you want to or not, you'd have to get a little more serious in this in this title. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, it's worth um, it's it is worth pointing out that uh, Renee Montoya Renee Montoya her conversation with Batgirl on the rooftop in this issue. Batgirl essentially Barbara Gordon essentially agrees, or, or she later. I mean, she hints at it, but then later confirms in the comic when she talks to Cassandra and Stephanie that she's going to be doing less hacking. She's going to be using her hacking skills less and less because of this conversation she has with Renee Montoya. It's almost as if Clunrad, they've they've decided that maybe uh, suddenly Barbara Gordon has has is having second thoughts about the morality of her violating the privacy of people in her investigations and being a glorified, the number one hacker in the DC universe. So I find that kind of interesting. I'm not sure if they're, if that, if that's just for this issue or I'm sure she's going to go back to doing it from time to time, but I just thought that was kind of interesting and maybe a little inconsistent with her other, with her portrayal, certainly in Nightwing. But again, it's, it's like you said, there's, there's always subtle little differences that, you know, it's up to the reader to reconcile in her own headcanon. Yeah, that is a very interesting aspect of the story. That's actually what I was going to, was going to touch on next. At first I sort of took it as, okay, so that means she's not going to hack into the Gotham City police database. I mean, that's the whole reason she meets Montoya, right? Like she thinks to herself, I don't want to just hack in. I'd rather have the personal touch. Um, but then when she goes back to her apartment, you know, she's talking to Dick and she's like, Oh, my back, you know, is really hurting and blah, blah, blah. So how much can she be Batgirl? Is, are they planning a seed for that? In terms of you know the chip that's been implanted, which I don't really understand. Like I I get it if you're using it as a reason to get her back into her Oracle persona because there is a segment of fans like I was talking about that really enjoy that. But then how do you reconcile that with this you know like you said morality um, struggle that she's having with yeah I shouldn't be hacking and violating people's privacy like. There is, uh, in real life, an, on, uh, an ongoing debate in sort of the circles of, of computer-savvy uh, people, um, especially if you go in, into the dark web and 4chan and all that kind of thing, and you have what's called white hats, and you have what's called black hats, and you have what's called gray hats. Um, anybody who considers themselves a, a black hat, if they're hacking, they're only in it for themselves. They don't care about anybody who gets hurt. Then you have the people that are white hats, and yeah – do they violate people's privacy? Do they break into companies? Do they technically break the law? Yes, all the time, every day, but they do it only in a way to investigate and to vet people, other people who are breaking the law who are causing much more damage than them, right? Like if some company is doing something, you know, horrible, they might hack into that company, into their emails and try to get proof and then turn it over to the authorities all in the interest of stopping those people. And then you have the gray who based on the, um, yeah. based on the, the situation may go one way or the other. Um, so it is an ongoing debate and I, I do find it interesting, but again, is this something that they're going to explore? Because that is, is interesting, but it's also a very mature theme. Does it fit the target audience that they're going for? If they, the whole reason they're doing this thing with Barbara's chip is to get her back in the wheelchair if you take away Oracle's ability to, to hack, um, <clears throat> excuse me, then she's far, <clears throat> excuse me, she's far less interesting. Yeah. 
No, no, it's true. She's, uh, but, but I mean, they got to decide. It, she's got the bad girl versus the oracle pers- personages, and uh, and it depends on which which aspect of that you want to cater to. I think, uh, you know, but. You know, frankly, the the diff- Tom Taylor, I think, has done a good job of balancing those two. And frankly, Barbara Gordon here has played both sides of the fence as well under Clunrad. Uh, and, you know, again, I, I think that there's some aspects of these stories, like you said, <laughs> they're maybe difficult to reconcile. But then it is two different audiences that they're catering to. And I think, you know, whether you whether one likes the uh, concept of the DC Omniverse or not, clearly this is sort of the idea that everything matters and that includes slightly different interpretations of the characters that we know and love. Yeah, exactly. And there's nothing wrong with evolving them, with trying different versions of them. uh, But all those versions aren't going to work for, for all the fans. Um, And what you don't want is the tone of a book shifting or uh, it can be a a bit of a wasted potential of a particular storyline or aspect of a character if the tone of the book doesn't allow you to explore an interesting idea fully. So um, they're, they're doing, I will say, I'll give them a lot of credit for sort of walking this tightrope. Um, and it, it is pretty interesting. Um, so yeah. And again, credit for the, showing the relationship of Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon. Um, th- I felt like that was a little bit of a mature Scene. I mean, clearly they've spent the night together. <laughs> so when, uh, yeah. So when I I was reading, it, I was like, "Huh, who's this aimed at again?" So yeah, they're they're walking a tough line. They've got a tough assignment for sure. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Dark Crisis: World Without a Justice League Wonder Woman number one. Tinny Howard does the script. Layla De DeLuca on art. Jordi Belair on colors. Troy Petrie on letters. Um, there were some variant covers. Chris Rosa. Uh, Al yeah. Barrio Nuvo and Annette Kwok. So, yeah. Um, again, and we've talked about this a lot. We've talked about these worlds without a Justice League. The whole idea that Pariah has trapped the supposedly deceased members of the Justice League in these these happiness prisons, where they're you know in this world that has been plucked from their own mind of, of what they would want the world to look like. And somehow that's generating some power or energy that Pariah can harvest. Man, this may be the, the worst one yet in terms of, I can't imagine this is anything like a world that Wonder Woman would want to see. I'm glad um, you said it. I'm glad you said it. Cause I've always been a little bit of a negative Nelly with Wonder Woman in the last year. Yeah, so I'm glad you I, said I, it first. Well, <laughs> yeah. So, so you're telling me what Wonder Wonder Woman's happiness prison is, Etta Candy being president? Yeah. Okay, I could buy that. Closer ties with uh, Man's World and Themyscira? Okay, I'll, I'll buy that too. But that's about it in terms of what this is. Her mother lying to her for, for ev- like have lying to her forever, like not not just recently, but lying to her forever. Her mother holding Doctor Psycho hostage and sort of torturing him. In a way, uh, the Themyscarans, yeah. the Amazonians saying, you know what? We don't think man's world can be saved. We're tired of, of trying to save them and help them. We're going to get in a rocket and leave Earth. Like none of this feels like the the dream of Diana Prince in my mind. So yeah. I yes. had a really hard time with this. Um, I will say that the storytelling 
by DeLuca is really strong. I was impressed with that. Um, her style isn't, isn't really my favorite type, uh, but it did, it did work with the tone of the story. Uh, and Jordi Belair, you know, who always does great color work, um, also, you know, up to her usual standards, but I just found this sort of odd. It was, it felt more like if you wanted to imprison Wonder Woman in a world that would frustrate her and anger her, this is the world you would pick. Not, I wouldn't say this is a world that would make her happy. So I don't know. I, I really struggled with this one. I mean, we talked about it with the very first one um, when it was Superman and the whole entire galaxy had been conquered by Darkseid. And I, and that was the reason why, I mean, you were the one that said, yeah, I, I think this is the world where, um, you know, Pariah is trapping these, has trapped Superman for whatever reason, um, because he's getting his fondest wish, which is to, you know, have back those years that he lost when John was artificially aged up. And I pushed back on that thinking, I, I can't believe, uh, you know, this, a world that Superman would want or a reality that Superman would want would be one in which Darkseid had conquered the rest of the universe. But it turned out to be true. But again, I, at least he got the years back from John. Uh, other than Etta Kanda being president, um, I don't really see what Diana gets out of this. And I, I don't, in all fairness to the friendship of, um, you know, with all respect to the friendship of Etta Kanda and Diana Prince, I don't think Diana's laying around going, you know what would make me the happiest in the world if Etta Kanda was president? Like, that's yeah. the one thing she gets. And I just don't think it's enough. So, yeah, this is – it's a little bit – these these uh, Dark Justice uh, – or Dark Crisis Worlds Without a Justice League, they've been a little rough. Um, yeah. Very but rough. I will say the, the backup uh, that we'll talk about here in a little bit, I felt almost completely opposite of um, – but that, that one is – you know, when you think of it from that same perspective of a happiness prison, I have some issues there, but – it was a much more interesting story and the artworks was fantastic. So anyway, but I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, let's get your thoughts on the main story here. Well, uh, just to be clear, uh, all of these, uh, these dark crisis uh, side stories, collateral issues, world without a justice league, I think I, I can safely say now are in my view. And I say this with love. They're terrible. They're not very good. And they don't, they don't, they don't, they don't reinforce essential narrative. In fact, they betray the very premise that is spelled out, at the very beginning, when it says that these worlds have been created from the innermost hopes of the Justice League, they have not been created from the innermost hopes of the Justice League. How do we know that? Because we've read the stories and you've just touched upon in Wonder Woman. And we, we can talk about how the Superman story, that wasn't really Superman's innermost hope. It was to some limited extent, but then it become completely bastardized because Pariah is clearly doing something to screw everything up. And that's the most polite thing I could say about it. Yeah, same thing with Green Lantern. Uh, same thing with the Aquaman backup story and uh, with the Green Arrow and, and with Hawkgirl. Everything, these are sort of like the innermost hopes but yet they're they're really not it's this is disjointed and it's kind of all over the place and all for what we know that apparently these worlds these stories that we're reading are supposedly creating energy for pariah to do what he did in last week's dark crisis number four which was he he has now brought back the infinite earths all from the energy created from these heroes in these worlds where they're exploring their innermost hopes but as you said how is this illustrate Wonder Woman's innermost hope? Wonder Woman's innermost hope is to live on a world that almost destroys itself by nuclear war and her Amazons leave Earth, giving up on Earth. 
and where her where her where she selfishly cares that her 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 friend Ada Candy becomes president, or where she refers or she whisks Ada Candy away and says the words, "I'm going to take you away from the so-called security of man's world to the true security of my kind." Sounds kind of bigoted to me. I, I don't like the language that Wonder Woman is here. I think she's uh, I, everything about this. I think is just terrible. She talks about. Uh, Wonder Woman tells Ada Candy, you have defeated your enemies in an ideological battle. Wonder Woman, she just became president of the United States. Is that how you would describe it? She defeated her enemies in an ideological battle? That is, is that how you think of the political process in the United States? If it sounds like I'm nitpicking, maybe I am. But in, in, this, in, this, in these politically toxic and divisive times, this is not what I think think that one how Wonder Woman should be talking or acting. And it really, really disappoints me, to be quite frank. And I've said before, time and time again, and I'm I know I sound like a broken record here, but I think it's time that Wonder Woman stopped referring to man's world as man's world. If you're gonna preach equality, stop stop referring to a planet whose population has more women on it than men as man's world. It's kind of insulting, especially if you're purporting to preach equality. But this is, and so this is, this is Wonder Woman's innermost hopes. It just bothers me. And then Dr. Psycho is, is uh, Dr. Psycho, we know to be a, a chauvinist pig. We know that. Uh, and so the fact that he's being kept hostage here, but Dr. Psycho here is a guy who basically admits that he's wrong. And of course, when he admits that he's wrong, he says to Wonder Woman, you really were better than all of us all along. And you didn't gloat about it either. So this is Dr. Psycho. I mean, t- t- writer Teeny Howard here is writing a Dr. Psycho who is falling on his knees. Oh, Wonder Woman, you're so great. You always knew. You're always so great. This is almost... Almost maybe pull back on the compliments of how perfect Wonder Woman is. And, and then the Amazons, I guess they're not as perfect as Wonder Woman. And um, it just this whole thing just kind of rubbed me the wrong way, to be honest with you. Uh, there, I mean, Wonder Woman's dream, we all know what Wonder Woman's dream is. She wants a world of peace and prosperity. And, and where people get along and love each other, uh, free of prejudices and, and uh, you know, any kind of uh, gender inequality. But that's not really what this is. And uh, it's it's just very, very disappointing. And, um, you know, it was just, it was just a little disheartening. Uh, the art by uh, Leila DeLuca, I, I thought it was devoid. Uh, I thought... Uh, it, it really, there were moments when the art was, I thought was fantastic. The last page was the best art. I thought Wonder Woman looked majestic and gold walking out. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure where she is, but it looks pretty good. But a lot of the scenes I thought were devoid of backgrounds. I thought the, the coloring was, was pretty good by Jordi Belair, uh, but the coloring had to be good because there was no backgrounds otherwise. So she really needed to rely on the backgrounds. Uh, there were scenes that were all basically, again, one, uh, the, the coloring, I think, compensated for what I think was not the greatest. Uh, you know, I, I thought the art was, I, I thought the art left, left much to be desired. When I first saw the so-called arc, the missile, I thought it was a missile. I thought it was a nuclear missile. Apparently it's an actual spaceship. Uh, so I, I, you know, again, I'm, maybe I'm nitpicking, but I thought the art could have made that more clear. Um, overall, I, I understand what the purpose, we all understand what the purpose of Dark Crisis World Without a Justice League is. And it's not Tina Howard's fault or the other writer's fault that, you know, they, uh, 
you know, maybe it's Joshua Williamson's fault, maybe it's editorial, but they've they've not done a very good job of convincing me that these stories actually are cohesive and come together with one central theme or narrative. It just doesn't, it's just too disjointed for me. I get it. I have head canon. I love DC Comics. I'm a sucker for a good crisis. So I'll reconcile it in my head, but these stories kind of missed the boat for me. And I, I can't believe how much of a missed opportunity it is for these writers I mean, do do they actually think that this is the, I mean, all these stories so far, that this is the story of what you wish for, uh, for all these heroes, that this is what, this is what their quote, innermost hopes are. I mean, I find that really hard to believe, but uh, I'll let you start talking about uh, what I think I agree with you is the f- by, by far better story here and far superior art. And that's the Martian Manhunter. Uh, story called Martian Squid Hunter written by Dan Waters and art by Brandon Peterson, which was pretty good. So go ahead. Yeah, Gorgeous Colors by Michael Atea too, which is why this art really surprised me. When I saw it, I'm like, oh, I, I really like the colors. It's black and white with just um, some spots of red here or there. And then when Martian Manhunter himself shows up, the normal John Jones, we get a little bit of green. Um I'm like, man, this art is absolutely gorgeous. Who did the line work? And I will go and I look and I see it's Brandon Peterson. Now, I'm a fan of Brandon, Brandon Peterson's style, but a lot of times where his art sort of – I don't particularly enjoy it is oftentimes he'll put this really thick, brightly colored line around his figure work, whether it's white or green or yellow, and it really separates the figure from the background, and I don't particularly care for that. So in this – issue, what he's done uh, on this story, what he's done is that instead of being a white line or brightly covered colored line, it's a black line. And because the background tends, the backgrounds tend to be in black and white, it really, really works. Um, I mean, there are a couple panels where the background is just black and John Jones is outlined in red. Um, but it doesn't, because again, it's that limited palette. it, It still works for me. So I thought this was fantastic, and my thinking was, man, Brandon Peterson, this is the way his artwork should always be colored because it, it just works on a much better level for me in terms of um, not having the uh, primary figure story, whatever, in the, in the particular panel be separated from the background and feel disjointed. So I thought that worked really, really well. Um, in terms of the story by Dan Waters, um, it, it does still have some of the same issues that we've talked about. Like, why would this be what J- John Jones would want? So apparently we're to believe that uh, at some point something happened with the superhuman attacks and environmental concerns. And so all the humans were forced to – all the humans on the entire planet – were forced to splice in squid and octopi DNA yeah. into their bodies <laughs> so they could better handle the changing environment and yeah. uh, superhuman attacks, which in itself is an interesting idea just on its own. But the thing where it really, <laughs> where it's really apparent is nobody has a bottom half of their face pretty much from their nose down. It's yeah. just a bunch of tentacles. So I'm not sure how they eat. I'm not sure I want to know. But it gives everybody this weird-looking face, uh, including John Jones himself. Um, yeah. So again, you have to wonder, why would this be something that Martian Manhunter would like? Now, apparently as sort of a, a side effect of the splicing the DNA, it's not really explained. Uh, humans have also developed a, some telepathy, 
um, which has in a way allowed people to have closer relationships with their loved ones. Cause you can kind of share thoughts and feelings much like Martians did in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, but the world doesn't necessarily seem to be better off for these people having survived. And, you know, the issue starts off with this guy who's literally been ripped apart. And the question is, what does paradise look like on earth? And then come to find out the person that's done this is Martian Manhunter himself. And he's sort of using that same excuse that we've seen, um, Thomas Wayne use in Flashpoint Beyond, which is none of this matters. This isn't a real world. This isn't a film. Uh, it's not even as real as a film. I can kill whoever I want because none of this matters. None of these lives matter. It's all a false paradise. Um, and the John Jones in the story, the one with half a squid face, without hesitation kills Martian Manhunter or shoots him in the head anyway and says, you know what? I, I don't really care. I saw one planet burn. Um and, you know, this is my new paradise. You know, I have a family. I have things that care that I care about. And, you know, th- this is paradise to me. Again, we could make that argument that that doesn't make a whole lot of sense for who John Jones is as uh, a character. But but what's interesting is this, the, this is the first time in any of these uh, stories, these World Without a Justice League stories, where we see somebody who's self-aware enough to start pushing back on – the reality, right? Well, because actually, Aquaman Martian did. Man, Arthur Curry did, sort of in the at the end of Aquaman. Yeah, he, well, he, he's, he's like of. something doesn't. Yeah, something doesn't feel right. I mean, you, yeah. you can make the argument that Superman as well. Yeah. Um, Wonder Wonder Woman as well. If you take the story in a certain context, why did she get so mad yeah. at her mom? Because she doesn't believe that that kind of thing really would happen. Um, but it's leading me to a, a bigger point. But you can kind of understand what you know why John Jones would you know manifest another version of himself and then appear to the, you know, the version of himself that is buying into this reality because he is, you know, so much more mentally strong. He has the mental abilities. So you can kind of understand why he would be the one who's trying to, in a way, warn himself, yeah. you know, warn his conscious self. You know, think about it. This Martian Manhunter that shows up here as kind of a manifestation of his unconscious warning his conscious self, Hey, this is not real. You know, you're buying into something that's, uh, you know, a construct, a mental yeah. construct. Um, as far as, you know, us complaining about, yeah, this is not what their happiness would look like. And, and you, you know, you nailed it right from the start when we were talking about the Superman one and saying, you know, this is corrupted by Pariah. You know, Pariah's got a lot of trauma based on, you know, the, the way he was created, based on the anti-monitor saying, okay, you're going to have this power. You're going to have this ability that you're going to go and appear in all the realities and on all the earths that are about to be destroyed. He's seen maybe more people die than anybody you know, ever in the history of, uh, of the universe. So if that colors his outlook, it very well could be that in his mind, you know, what, what he wants is to not have seen those deaths. He wants to, you know, restore the multiverse. He wants to restore his family. It's what he's always wanted. Um, but it could be that he's so far gone that he's gone into these uh, heroes minds and pluck the first thing he came across that he thinks will make them happy, you know, something close to the surface in the case of Superman, something recent with John being aged up and not bothered to look deeper into who these heroes are and think that these kind of flawed and um, really terrible realities that, that these happiness prisons are would be enough for them because in his mind, it would be enough for him because of everything he's gone through. And if I think about it in that way, I can kind of give every these writers a pass, give everyone a pass on 
why these worlds look the way they do um, and why it's not working now. I hope if that's actually the case and that's why these worlds yeah. aren't really happy or utopian at all, um, then that would make a lot of sense to me. And I hope that it, we get there, that that's what's actually going to be the case. And the other part of it could be that the way all these heroes are going to break out of these prisons rather than being rescued themselves is they are going to come to the realization that, yeah, this place that I live in is, is awful. Um, and there'll be some sort of self-awakening because they are so flawed. This, this issue, this Martian Manhunter one was the best because it conveyed what I think is the central premise. And, and you certainly touched upon it. And that is Martian Manhunter because of his telepathic powers, he's the best equipped to know when, when somebody's feeding him a telepathic line of bullshit. And so, but, and he's so desperate to tell his, his other mental aspect of himself that this is not real, that he actually becomes a murderer in the dream world to, cause he knows it'll attract his self because he knows his other self has a strong moral compass. So he becomes a serial killer in his own in his own perfect world in order to get his own attention. That's what I find so cool here. And that's what I like about Dan Waters does with this story. Uh, but unfortunately, Martian Manhunter fails and his other self manages to kill him. So uh, because he doesn't believe, you know, his other self actually doesn't believe him because he likes the world that he's living in. So, but there's still, uh, I still, uh, I think it's a great idea to have at the end of each of these stories, if there would have been more, if there'd have been more hint that Pariah was, I mean, Pariah was showed up at the end of the Hawkgirl one laughing. He was laughing at the end of the Hawkgirl one. Aquaman called out, was talking to somebody at the end of his, and now Martian Manhunter is doing here, but we had nothing with Superman, nothing with Green Lantern. Um, I don't think these stories have been done very well. I don't think they've been editorially managed very well. It should have been more clear. I think because this, this doesn't feel like these are the innermost hopes of the, of these heroes. And uh, it's really, really unfortunate. You and I and, and, and astute readers can, we can, we can create our own headcanon and justify these stories. And that's what we're going to do because I want to make them work, but uh, we shouldn't have to do that. And, but I, I don't want to take away from a great story here by Dan Waters. I don't imagine Dan Waters is necessarily super familiar with every, with Martian Manhunter. I mean, really what writer is, but I'm impressed with this story here. And he actually makes it really work in a way that is far more creative than any of these world without a justice league stories we've read so far, in my opinion. Yeah, I would agree. And, and a lot of it, again, has to do with that artwork. It's just so fantastic. It really worked. Um, again, I, I mean, I don't know that Brandon Peterson's artwork should always be like that, but uh, I would hope that editors are paying attention and see how great his artwork works with that limited palette to yeah. give him some more stories like that. So, uh, all right. Up next, we have Batman versus Robin number one. It's written by Mark Wade. Mahmoud Azrar is the artist. Jordi Blair on colors. Steve Wands on letters. I don't know what it is about doing the giant double page spread with a giant title for Mark Wade books. They do the same thing with uh, World's Finest. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, I'm a Mark Wade fan, but uh, I would say that his uh, his star has the shine has come off it a little bit. He's not as big of a name as he, he used to be. Um, but anyway, he, he does seem to be slowly incorporating himself back into the DCU on Batman of all places, which is interesting since um, he's more of a Superman guy. But anyway, uh, this is the book that we were talking about that has a return of a beloved character. Uh, 
kick it away. Uh, kick it off, Rocky. What what do you think? Take it away. Well, uh, first a shout out to the variant covers here. I love Jason Fabuck. He's one of my so favorite. Uh, uh, he's one of my favorite artists, uh, modern day art- artists. And there's a fantastic Fabuck uh, cover uh, with Batman and Robin. Looks just really really amazing. And there's other variant covers that are really good as well. One that has Zatanna on it, one that has the demon Nezha on it, who of course is within the story, and uh, it's just it's just really really well done, and uh, uh, just a whole pile of covers here. But in any event, we uh, what I what I like about Mark Wade here is that he starts off he's so good at doing a story. I mean, Mark Wade's skill you just. My God, you can just see that this isn't the guy's first merry-go-round, and it's certainly not his first time writing these characters. And he just has an instinct for them. He's, he does such a good job. And, uh, you know, what I this starts off with this lone figure approaching Wayne Manor. And what was really shocking here for me, and I know you and I get these preview copies ahead of time, and I'm reading this, and I honestly had no idea who this lone figure was. He approaches Wayne Manor, and then we have some narration with Batman reflecting on things, and there's a door, he opens the door, and all of a sudden it's Alfred. And it's like, what, WTF? Are you kidding, Alfred? I'm thinking this is Batman v Robin because I know that Robin freed the demon Nizha at the at the end of World's Finest number seven. He was an, at the door, so I assume that Robin Damian Wayne has freed the demon Nizha and he's possessed by the demon Nizha, uh, and and of course he is, and and that leads him to attack Batman. That's the central premise here. But what threw me is something far more significant starts this story off, and it's it's literally the return of Alfred. And right away, you know that this is, hey, this is Bruce Wayne we're talking about here. He's not going to believe this is really Alfred. So he run, he puts Alfred through the ringer. He asks, bombards him with questions and everything else. And very clearly, uh, Alfred answers all his questions. This is all indicated in the narration. Very well done. And it's done succinctly. Mark Wade doesn't waste time like some other writers will who will go nameless. You know, it doesn't take him 15 pages to have a conversation. He, you know, he can do it in two or three. He conveys the essence of these characters that we all know and love. And it's clear that, uh, you know, he's, he's still getting familiar with, with trying to get used to the fact, is this Alfred? And, and at one point, Alfred says, let's go down to the Batcave. Bat, Alfred knows exactly how to get down to the Batcave, knows where, how to turn the, the grandfather clock to the right time, 1047, which is the time that Wayne's parents were murdered, and to open the doors to go down to the Batcave. So he's passing all the tests. But they get down, to, as we're walking down to the Batcave, I want to know more how is Alfred returns, but you get down to the Batcave, and lo and behold, there's Damien, and you know something's off with Damien, and he's there with Tim Hunter, um, and Joaquin Thunder, and both, you know, both people of, of magic, Tim Hunter being a, a, a basically a, a future sorcerer, and Joaquin, of course, Johnny Th- uh, Thunder, and uh, they're there to essentially take out Batman, because the demon Nessa wants to get revenge on Batman for being in prison, because it was, of course, Batman and Superman that imprisoned the demon Nessa through the first uh, six issues of Mark Wade's World's Finest run. And so, uh, lots of action here. His Batman knows his son. He knows something's possessed Damien. Uh, him and uh, Bruce and uh, Alfred barely managed to escape. Uh, Damien doesn't believe that this is really Alfred. He believes it's a trick, but they managed to escape. Batman ends up uh, st- taking a key with him that he got from Zatanna. 
And he, because Batman just intuitively knows that he's dealing with magic, he makes his way over to, uh, he, he wants to make his way over to, uh, find Zatanna. And it's pretty cool what Mark Wade does. He's got a magic key and it, because Zatanna gave him the key, Zatanna told Batman, no matter what door you open with this key, you'll always open into my house, my domain, my house. I thought that was pretty cool. I've never seen that. I've never seen that concept done in, in Justice League Dark. If it was, uh, people can correct me in the chat, but I think that's a pretty cool concept. And it ends up that, uh, all of the Justice League Dark, have been defeated already by the demon Nezha. And in fact, many people, many heroes have already been defeated by the demon Nezha. And because you see uh, Zatanna uh, incapacitated in between life and death, hanging uh, on a hangman's noose. Uh, John Constantine has been taken off the board. The the demon Etrigan has been caught in between transformations between Jason Blood and the demon. And uh, it's clear that something is going on here and Damien, Damien, uh, is, is frustrated and the demon Nezha and of course Mother Soul, uh, they're, they, they want, uh, the demon Nezha and Mother Soul are frustrated with Damien because the, he failed in taking out Batman. And right in front of the demon Nezha at the end are, you can see that they've defeated other enemies because there's relics of other heroes. You see, a, I think that's either Alan Scott's Green Lantern. Uh, lantern or it's hell jordan's there is bibbo the detective chimps cap there is the i think that might be blue devil's uh trident or aquaman's trident i'm not sure there, there's a there's a necklace that might be from another vir- hero i'm not sure who the other armor is is from but <laughs> uh this is this this just excites me this excites me. I mean, this is why I read comics. I'm I'm so excited for this because we get so much cram packed in this opening issue. I'm excited to see where this is going to lead and to top it off, man. Uh, and I I can't believe I'm saying this, but by the time I got to the end of this, I, I almost forgot that Alfred returned, and I'm I'm really excited to know the secret of of his return. But I'm so excited about where this story has gone. So, man, I'm. I'm quite impressed, and uh, I just want to give a shout out here uh, to. I just want to give a show on the screen. Uh, there is a scene where, uh, when Alfred hugs Bruce Wayne, it's very reminiscent visually of the scene in Rebirth where Wally hugs Barry Allen. The scenes are very similar. I have them up on the screen for people to see, and it's uh, it's hard not to tug at the heartstrings, especially for those of us who loved Rebirth and want to get a sense of that hope that you and I sound like broken broken records for from time to time talking about. But I I was I was really impressed with this how we. And it was such a, a wonderful surprise because I wasn't expecting to see Alfred in this. I, and I know maybe it was spoiled a little bit in some quarters, but I think a lot of people are going to be pleasant, su- pleasantly surprised by this. So uh, what do you think? Yeah. Uh, you know, we know that there's going to be some big magical event coming up uh, as sort of a crossover into uh, various DC Comics next year. This seems to be the start of that. Um, but I've never particularly enjoy I don't know if it's the characters or what but I've never particularly enjoyed the magic corner of either the DC or Marvel universe um you know Doctor Strange and uh Doctor Fate and all that sort of stuff they just they're just not characters that inspire me maybe it's because at the end of the day magic is such an ex deus machina right where you can write your character into a corner and then just have them snap their fingers and well how did they get out of it well it was magic 
So I don't know. It always seemed like a bit of a cheat to me. Um, that being said, obviously I, I'm happy that Alfred's back. Obviously there's a mystery here and it's going to have everything to do with magic. And so I don't know what other way you bring him back unless it was after the events of dark crisis when, you know, there's some sort of a reset of the DC universe again. So, um, If I had to choose between the two of those, uh, I guess in a way, the reset of the DC universe makes more sense to me, but magic's probably a simpler explanation and it does allow Alfred to come back sooner. One of the other things I don't like is it's super tropey that we're getting this Damian Wayne possessed by the demon Nezha storyline. It's not so different from what we're getting in Dark Crisis with Pariah We've gotten it so so many times. You make the argument Deathstroke, Slade Wilson as well, possessed by um, who's ever corrupted the great darkness. It's not a new concept. It's been used time and time and time again. Um, but the problem I have with it being used here is when Damien is, is possessed and corrupted, it's sort of pushing him back into what he was previously mm-hmm. uh, that I talked about when I was talking about Future State Gotham not so different than what he is at Batman 666. Very much this mustache twirling uh, villain. And I don't know, maybe Mark Wade thinks, well, I never got to write Damien when he was a brat. So this gives me an out to write him when he's a brat. I just don't like this version of Damien. So uh, you've got this story, you've got this crossover that's coming where it's the, the version of Damien that I dislike the most and we're going to get a bunch of magic users that I don't, I'm not really that invested in, in terms of, you know, Zatanna and um, Detective Chimp, which I never understood why he was part of Justice League Dark and became, I mean, I sort of get it because he's friends with all those people. But He owns the Oblivion anyway. Bar, which is which is uh, magically yeah. linked to the Justice League. Right, but he, himself, <laughs> but he himself doesn't have any magical abilities. And the yeah. argument could be made. The fact that he's, you know, one of the most brilliant de- detective minds, that he's the last person that should be in some magical world. Maybe that's what people, writers found interesting because it's such a juxtaposition. But again, these are just, these just aren't characters that I'm interested in. Um, Z- Zatanna, in terms of how she connects to Bruce I, and, and how they've tied her into Bruce's past recently. Uh, and I've said many times, I much rather would see a relationship between Zatanna and Batman or Zatanna and Bruce Wayne than, than Catwoman and Batman. I think Zatanna and Bruce make a better couple, make more sense, have, you know, much more in common in terms of, terms of values and all that sort of thing. Um, so I am interested because it's Zatanna, but you know, I could do without ever reading another Swamp Thing story, John Constantine, um, Tim Hunter. Uh, yeah, they, they just, there's, there's not characters that interest me, but, but they're taken Magic off the been, board here. They, they might not even play a role here because they've already been taken off the board. So we don't know what role they're going to play, if any, in this. So we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, yeah, we will have to wait and see. If it ends up being just this version of Damien that I don't care for, that'll be even worse, to be, to be honest with you. <laughs> it's just not – It's he's just not a character that I enjoy reading. Well, I thought, um, I thought, Jace, though, you – I thought we both agreed that uh, we like Jace at the end of uh, his Robin run, Robin number 17, Josh Williamson's last run exactly. in the series. Exactly. Yeah, I, thought, I do. Well, I, but I this very is, much. Yeah, but this but is this an is evil – this that. is I know. Well, no, it's, but he's possessed. So, I mean, it's, it's not actually – That's my it's, point. That's my point, Rocky. 
that's my point. You spent all this time and did a fantastic job, Joshua Williamson, of evolving the character into a more nuanced, more complicated, much more interesting version of Damian Wayne, mm. right? You spent all that effort because, again, even you and I both said at the beginning of Robin, it felt like Joshua Williamson had had devolved him and then mm. you know built him back up past the point that he'd been at. And now Mark Wade comes in and says, oh, I never got to write Damien when he's a jerk. I'm going to throw all that out. Now, again, <laughs> I know he's not necessarily throwing it out in terms of, yeah. you know, continuity wise, he's not throwing it out. This is because he's possessed, but the, he, he, is, he has devolved him by making him possessed. And now he's just a jerk again that I don't want smart mouth punk that I don't enjoy reading for, you know, it doesn't matter if the, what the reason is despite the fact that the reason is maybe the most overused trope in in comic history, I would argue. What used to happen every single time back in the day when Marvel characters met for the first time? There was always a misunderstanding and they would fight each other. Sure. Every single time. Now, there would be, again, various reasons for that. Sometimes they were possessed. Sometimes it was a, something was confused. They'd never met before, blah, blah, blah. But it has been overused to the point that, frankly, I'm a little disappointed in Mark Wade for making this decision to have him possessed by the demon Neza. But I think, it, though, that don't, don't you think, though, that the fact that Alfred, at some point, I'm sure we know how close Damien, how Alfred's death affected Damien. When, when, when Damien realizes, even a possessed Damien realizes that that is the real Alfred, that might have an impact on the psyche. And, and that might be sort of like the emotional centerpiece of the story or the story arc. What do you think? No, I, again, that's been done to death. That doesn't, that's not new. That's not interesting. If that's what happens, hey, great. But again, it's it, to me, it won't be very impactful because it's been done time and time and time again. And frankly, I expect better from Mark Wade. I expect something new and something different. You are harsh, my friend. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, is anything that I'm saying not true? Well, I, I don't – I think it's sort of been – I mean, I suppose we could argue that I, – I get it that that's sort of like it's been done in different ways before. I just death? think that I – I don't think it's been quite done quite like this. I mean, Alfred, Alfred's death and, and Damien's reacting to it, and and just the way that 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 Mark Wade seems to just tell a story. It's just uh, well, I'm I'm enjoying it. And I'm 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 quite excited so far. What Mark Wade has done, he's 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 taken what on the one hand should be a very almost tropey story, but world's finest. What those first six issues. What was so special about them? Well, frankly, it was just, I loved his creativity. I loved his choreography. I liked the manner in which he told a story that ultimately, if you just look at the bullet points, it doesn't sound all that great, but the way that it came across, I mean, it's very memorable and, and it's, you know, and I think it's resonating with fans and I don't know what it is, but I just get a feel that I get a, a sense in the back of my mind that the old DC that I know and loved is returning with his writing. Well, you're right. You're right there. You're, you're right there. The old DC is returning because again, Mark Wade is turning back the clock on Damien. I never got to write him when he was a brat. This is how I can write him when he's a brat. He says whatever <laughs> and it's funny or whatever. I just – I cannot – It's I, I can't really overstate how much I dislike Damien Wayne when he is a smart aleck punk. It's, it's just the most lazy, uninteresting version of Damien. And it's like for whatever reason, DC seems determined to bring that version of Damien back time and time again, like 
Uh, I'm just, I'm over it at this point. So are there interesting aspects to the story? Yeah, there are some interesting aspects to the story. Uh, I love that Alfred's back. I hope that we get some Batman Zatanna, but in terms of, of the Damien aspect of the story, the possession aspect of the story, and, and maybe that emotional center that you're talking about um, with, oh, Damien realizes it really is Alfred and that's what pulls him back from being possessed. It, it won't land with any impact for me because it's been done time and time again. So that's just my own personal thing. Well, somewhere Mark uh, Wade is hearing you and he's saying to himself, challenge accepted. <laughs> hey, I, I hope so. I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm a fan of, of, of Wade, but uh, I, I'm just, I'm not a fan of Damien. You know, I'm, I'm really not despite me uh, really enjoying what Joshua Williamson has done with the character. Um, but this feels like a step backwards. So, well, uh, and it's, it's going to be interesting really to see. I didn't really care forward. for the, the Osrar art. Um, I don't know why Jordi Belair chose the color palette that she chose. Um, I don't know if she felt that it suited the line work best, but for me, the, the line work and the color work, it's very muddy. Uh, I didn't, so I didn't care for it. I, I, I think the storytelling is fine. And I've seen Osrar's artwork before over at Marvel and it's been very dynamic here, it feels like there's something lacking. Um, and again, I don't know if it's the fact that the, the color palette is muted and it's not doing the best to kind of highlight the art or if uh, this is just a different style that Mahmoud is trying. Um, but yeah, I, th I thought the art was, it's not bad art, but you know, for something big like this, a big event, I would expect it to be a little better. Um, so yeah, I was just, uh, I was a little disappointed. So but you're right about the covers. There are some spectacular covers and there are a lot, a lot, a lot of covers. Yeah. <laughs> um, probably the, the Fabok one that you mentioned might be my favorite one, but mm. I don't know. Um, the one, I don't even know who did it. Uh, the one with um, Zatanna by herself. That one's pretty solid as well. Yeah, uh, I, I particularly enjoyed that one. That might be a Joshua Middleton one now that I look at it more closely. But uh, anyway, let's move on. Uh, Superman, Son of Kal-El, number 15, script by Tom Taylor, pencils by C and Tormey, inks by Tormey and Scott Hanna, colors by Frederico Blee and Matt Herms and Dave Sharp on letters. So time for... Tom Taylor to finally finish up the Henry Bendix storyline that's been going on since issue one. Uh, Rocky certainly has talked about it in the past, how it takes Tom Taylor time, sometimes too long to get to the point. Uh, part of that is that he has so many character moments and we certainly enjoy those, but yeah, his, his plots can tend to drag a little bit. So ultimately this was, I think very satisfying to see the end that Bendix comes to. Now, do I think Bendix is gone for good? no, not at all, despite the fact that Lex Luthor does give him some sense of justice, uh, which is, again, in and of itself sort of interesting that Lex Luthor is the one that ultimately defeats Bendix um, by you know, blowing him out of an airlock. Um, it would have been nice to see Bendix's body explode. Even then, we know it wouldn't be the last of him because comics, but it is sort of um, a way that Bendix gets his comeuppance. Uh, and I also will say that Taylor does a great job of writing Bendix uh, as very believable in terms of being petty and, and willing to, you know, destroy the whole country of G Gamora and go scorched earth as Lex Luthor puts it 
that's everything we know of Bendix, right? That that's very true to the character. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And, you know, uh, this is the Damien that is more mature and does have, you know, more of a sense of, of morality. And that I do. Enjoy you mean, you mean John period. or Damien? You Damien. said Damien. Yeah. Damien. Oh, and this, this is, yes, this is a Damien. That, this is the Damien that we had at the end of. Williams oh, okay. Sorry. Yes. Okay. This isn't the Damien from, uh, Batman 666, Future State Gotham. This isn't the yeah. Damien possessed by the demon Nezha. Right. This is a Damien who who does practice restraint uh, and just slaps Bendis and says, you know, when Bendis <laughs> says move and he slaps him, you want me You want me to move again? <laughs> yeah. Seriously, you're running away? Like, yeah. So this is the Damien, you know, he's, he, again, he practices restraint. This isn't the Damien that's going to go up there and beat the crap out of Bendix. He knows Bendix is defeated. So he can sort of toy with him a little bit. So uh, again, a Damien that I enjoy that's a little more subdued and not so, you know, over the top, angry, Punisher-like, if you will. So I I enjoyed that as well. So there's a lot to like here. Um, Obviously, the seed is planted for something more because when Bendix does go up, he teleports himself to the satellite. And that's where Lex, the satellite has a lot of LexCore tech, and that's how Luther defeats him because Bendix can't really do much because uh, Lex basically uses his own technology to take over the satellite and blows Bendix out the airlock, as I said. But before uh, Luther gets there, uh, he Bendix fires off this beam of energy that's going to take out Gamora, and John goes and gets in the way of it, and he's uh, absorbing it. We know that the Kryptonian cells are. You know, they absorb energy, whether that be solar light radiation or whatever. Um, This is a red beam, so I'm not exactly sure what it's doing to John's body, but clearly Tom Taylor makes makes it a point that it's doing something. And John even looks at his own hands at one point, and he can see through his skin to the bones. And he says, I can feel fire behind my eyes and my fingertips. Something's building inside me. I thought he was going to have to release that energy, um, but I guess not. Uh, So, again... There are character moments here. It does bring the Bendix story to an end. And uh, next we're going to have the, the return of uh, Kal-El. So wondering how that's going to play out. We know that coming up in Superman 1050, there's a big event that we're told changes the history of – or changes – nothing will ever be the same again for the Superman family. So, you know, hyperbole and blah, blah, blah. And we'll have to see if that's really the case or not. And you think there's a lot of covers for – Batman versus uh, uh, Robin, oh, forget about it. I think there's like 50 covers for this Action Comics 1050. It's so yeah, completely I, I don't, I don't understand. Like, why why yeah. so many? I don't get it. Yeah, I, I don't either. But in, in my mind, it's like, okay, well, if Superman's coming back next issue, the real Superman, um, then then this can be over, right? We don't need Superman, Son of Kal-El after issue 16. Obviously, that's not going to be the case because this has been selling really well, but yeah, if if Kal-El is back, no more John Kent Superman. I've talked – it had nothing to personal against John Kent. You know, we, ta- we talked about, you know, didn't really feel like he earned it necessarily, the title of Superman. Um, and, you know, we could argue about that more if we wanted, but we're not going to. Um, but the point being that I don't care if it's Spider-Man or Batman or Superman or who it is, who's second, who's first, whatever. There needs – just one character per name at a time, please. If you want to have another character, if you want to have John Kent do something, 
you know, as a hero and have his own title, I'm fine with that. Just give him a different name. I don't like when you have two Spider-Man or two Batman or two uh, Superman or two of anybody. They need to have different names. I just, I don't care for it uh, at not yeah. in the slightest bit. Uh, and I realize I'm being like super kind of ranty tonight. I don't know. Maybe I'm tired, but being very critical. <laughs> it's okay. Rant, just, rant. I'm going to rant. Just, I, I just don't <laughs> like it. I don't. I mean, back in the day, it would never have been done because you wouldn't want the confusion. And now it's like, I, I just don't understand. It's, it's part of the reason that we had all the, the pushback from conservatives when, oh, they turned Superman bisexual. No, it's not really Superman. It's Superman's son. Well, these people, we know these people don't read comics and you're calling John Kent Superman. So who are they supposed to think it is? You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Not that I'm defending them in any form. But what are they supposed to think? So, you know, Jace, I love Jace. I, I, we're going to talk about I Am Batman in a little bit. Fantastic issue. But he shouldn't be called Batman. There already is a Batman. Or take Bruce Wayne out of the cowl and just have Jace Fox as Batman and then call him Batman. But one yeah. at a time, please. Um, so anyway, I did enjoy this issue, uh, particularly for Bendis getting his comeuppance. Obviously, there's seeds planted. Um the only thing I could think, and this is probably not going to be the case, but uh, recently, you know, in the last few months, I had Ron Friends on the show to talk about the Electric Blue Superman. And it's so interesting because Ron Friends drew the first issue of Spider-Man in his new costume. Sure. Spider-Man could be argued as the most well-known Marvel character. And then we have uh, him on the DC side designing and drawing the first Electric Blue Superman, first new costume for Superman. That, that's just so interesting to me that it was the same guy. It wasn't like that was planned out or anything. Yeah. Um, but the, they, they did have plans to do something else with the Electric Blue, and they put it back in, and then they had Strange Visitor, and then that didn't work out and whatever. And go listen to the interview because uh, Ron talks about it, and there are still some sort of plot threads that are dangling from back of the day. And uh, I love the Electric Blue Superman. I know that many people didn't like it. Uh, but I have a fond, nostalgic uh, love of it back in the day. And I could only think because it's in space and because this beam was hitting it, was hitting um, John Kent and the whole Electric Blue Superman had to do with Superman getting his powers back after Final Night, which was this crossover where the sun was burning out uh, and Superman got supercharged and eventually his body converted that to electricity. And then when he wasn't in the Electric Blue, uh version of Superman. He was like Clark Kent, but fully human, you know, even though he's still Kryptonian, he was human. He could be hurt and all that sort of thing. Um, it would be interesting just for nostalgia's sake. If John Kent went electric blue Superman, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just oh, think that would be a whole hell of a lot of fun. Uh, but who knows if they would actually, if they would actually do that. But anyway, what did you think about this issue of, uh, Superman? Uh, you know, it's funny. It was, uh, I, I thought this was, uh, Actually, I, I thought this was a very, very clean wrap up to the plot line. Very clean. Uh, everything seemed to wrap up very neat, neatly, almost too neatly in a way that, um, I'm a little disappointed. And I, I want to be clear on this. I'm going to compliment Taylor for actually, this was a well choreographed sequence, uh, like a plot sequence. The battle scenes were good. The the actions were logical, taken by John Kent and Jay, and the way that Jay, they both, both Jay and him confronted uh, Henry Bendix. Jay told him to go, go help the others. I got to stay here. I'll distract Bendix. And 
and you can really tell the relationship between Jay and John. That's really been developed. I mean, you could certainly come up with a very compelling argument here that there – well, in fact, I don't think there's any question – this this entire I mean we're at fi- issue fifteen. This has been a fifteen issue relationship arc. This is what this has been. This has been the this is fifteen issues of building the relationship between Jay Nakamura and John Kent. That's what this is about. And this ends with them kissing in front of the eyes of the world after defeating uh, the the leader uh, the former leader of Gamora uh, John Bendix, who was defeated ultimately uh, in space by by Lex Luthor. And so uh, it's funny because. So everything wraps up nice, and I thought it was well played in terms of how John was utilizing the powers of of Wink from the revolutionaries uh, to to teleport him into the inner workings of John Hendrix and into the headquarters of John Bendix on Gamora. I thought it worked very well. I thought the plot sequences were well uh, well made. I thought the it the dialogue between Jay Nakamura and his mother who was sort of possessed and, ta- and her mind was controlled by Henry B- uh, by John Bendix I thought that was well done and ultimately when John Bendix lost his power and, and hold over Jay Nakamura's mother how, how she comes back and, and there's there's a great scene uh, there's a great scene when she realizes you know when you know Jay you know has a connection with his mom again and uh, the mind control is gone. There's a lot of really good character moments in the midst of all this battle. And yet at the same time, I can't help but to feel what's missing for me. uh, And maybe I'm expecting too much from Tom Taylor, but I, I was hoping that John Bendix would be a little bit more of a greater villain Uh, uh, because he's John Bendix is, is way, way, way smarter than this. He's not this stupid. Like if you, if if you're a longtime fan of his from the Wildcat days, from when he was with Midnighter, he he would never be defeated this easily. Uh, but then of course I'm I'm thinking back to the Wildcat days and the Wildstorm universe and what have you. But I get it. Uh, I think he's more on par with Lex Luthor. To me, he's he's become Lex Luthor's bitch here. So I'm it's a minor little nitpick of mine. But John Bendix is not this stupid. Uh, he's a little bit too megalom- megalomaniacal here, uh, and that to me it, it betrays how he was was portrayed at the early stages of this. When I mean, in the early issues, I was fascinated by the idea that how does John Kent defeat a guy who has the sanctity and and the sovereignty of a nation protecting him. You can't just, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that no, John Kent invaded a nation. He invaded Gamora. There's probably going to be no fallout from that. Or if there is, it's going to be breezed over because it's an issue that you don't want to deal with. And I get it. But again, um, but the wrap up is very nice. I I think for fans of uh, particularly fans that love uh, Jay's, uh, Jay and John's relationship. They're going to love this issue. This is really playing into that. This was very respectfully done. You know, say what you will, regardless of one's comfort level or how you feel about the bisexuality of uh, John Kent. I don't think anyone can argue that this was not very respectfully done. And he's got a healthy relationship uh, with Jay Nakamura. And they clearly have feelings for each other. And it shows. And they're not afraid to express those feelings to the eyes of the world. Having said that, I want to just say what what I'm reminded of at the last uh, on the very final page where I see John and Jay kissing. Uh, it makes me miss the secret identity. I still miss the secret identity. I think I would prefer I would prefer 
that they have that they would have kept their identity secret. I that Superman would keep his identity secret. I long for the return of the secret identity. I think actually his relationship with Jane Nakamura would be more interesting if he also had a secret identity. Personally, I think that would add more drama and more potential for stories. But uh, beyond that, uh, no, I thought this was I thought this was reasonably well done and one of the uh, better wrap ups for uh, for Tom Taylor. One of the better Tom Taylor issues for this particular Son of Kal-El series. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I miss the secret identity as, as well uh, of Superman, of, of John Kent. Um, I didn't really, I didn't comment on the kiss cause I don't really think it's a story. Honestly, the whole bisexual aspect of John Kent. Again, I don't find it interesting one way or the other. doesn't matter to me. Um, there obviously are some interesting aspects to be explored, you know, story-wise from the point of uh, the relationship with Jane Nakamura and what Batman told um, John about not being able to trust Jay. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. wh- was that just because he knew his mother was compromised? Is there something more to it? You know, I guess, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, but yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. Well, let's move on. Uh, I did mention I am Batman. We're going to talk about the latest issue. We're up to issue number 13 of this. It's written by John Ridley, Christian Duce, and Eduardo Panseca. And Julio Ferreira are the artists. Rex Locust does the colors. Troy Petrie on letters. Um, very wordy issue. <laughs> issue 13. A lot of dialogue in this one. A lot of exposition. What do you think? Uh, well, I actually like the story here. I, I got to like the story here. I, I do have to say, uh, before we get into it, one of the alternative colors, it was Hispanic Heritage Month, and uh, we probably would be a little bit, or would we be negligent if we don't mention some of the controversy over the Hispanic Heritage Month <laughs> with, the, with oh, the food yeah. and everything? This is, I got to say, the, one of the alternate covers of I Am Batman here, I Am Batman issue 13, is Rene Montoya surrounded by a bunch of fruit that apparently must be associated with the Hispanic Heritage, which, you know, forgive my ignorance, I thought food was food. But in any event, I, it, it seems a little bit silly to me, but, uh, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> Do you have any comment on that, Jason? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think I, I think the same thing that a lot of people think um, or have stated online. The, the fact that to you, Hispanic heritage means food. I, that, that, that's very reductive to what Hispanic heritage is. Yeah. They have a very rich history going back, especially if you're talking about uh, you know North American um, Hispanic people who have uh, ancestry that are Mayan or Incan or, uh, the Aztecs, you know, it's a, it's a very rich hit, you know, history in terms of mythology and belief and, um, traditions and to reduce it down to just food, yeah. uh, I think is, <laughs> yeah, that, that's very reductive. I mean, you could do the same thing to the French. You could do the same thing to Italians. Um, I suppose not so much to, Britons, um, people from the UK, not to be rude, but um, sure. probably because their food's not very – Again, I've never been to England. I don't know, but I hear stories. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did have some good friends at one point that were from, from there. Um, the girl was probably around my age, and her mom was a traveling nurse, and she came over to the United States and was working here. And they, they had British food, and I tried several things, including Vegemite. Yeah. And oh my God, it, I swear to God, it tasted like earwax. So I can kind of. Well, I've never tasted um, earwax. So I don't know what that tastes well, like. I'll oh take my your word God, for it. it was, 
<laughs> it was one of the worst things I've ever had in my life. I don't understand how people can eat it. So, uh, like, yeah, there's a lot of love and a lot of history and a lot of, um, traditions, you know, wrapped around the kitchen and, and the culinary arts of Hispanic, but it's a lot more than that. So I, yeah, a poor decision for Hispanic heritage much to, to month to make everything food related. And I, at least they made the right decision with the Kyle Rayner um, artwork and took away the bag of tamales and put back the original artwork that references a very famous uh, mural um, for Hispanics with, to do with freedom fighting and, and that sort of thing. Um, so they're not all food related, but all but one are. And yeah, it just feels a bit, it feels a bit like the person that made that decision didn't really think it through that well, to be honest. So yeah. Anyway, Mac. uh, the issue itself, what'd you think? Yeah. Uh, well the, the issue itself, I, I thought uh, it, it was actually pretty good. I thought, uh, it, Rene Montoya in the issue as the question, uh, teams up with, uh, of course, Jace of, uh, you know, uh, Jace Fox, who is the Batman of New York City, and uh, they, they, this issue essentially involves them investigating Detective Keenan, who they believe to be a corrupt cop and responsible for the death, ultimately the the death of Anarchy and uh, another officer by the name of Danny Chan. And throughout this issue, uh, they, uh, the the dialogue it's very dialogue heavy. The purpose of the dialogue is to sort of establish, you know, Jay seems to be, um. And this is the this is the highest the best compliment I can give, uh, and maybe it's too generous a compliment. But uh, the Jay seems to be learning something. Dare I say from the question? Because Renee seems to be very good. Uh, Renee Montoya is better at reading people than Jace is. Jace is still Jace seems to have a little bit of a chip on his shoulders. He's not good at reading people. Maybe he's still filled with a little bit of anger, but he's really not good at reading people or, or reaching them. And and uh, Renee, Renee, Renee Montoya, I mean, she's called the question after all. She's really good at asking questions of people and she's got a very good instinct when it comes to people. And she's basically telling Jace, uh, Batman saying, look, you, why don't you just ask this Detective Keenan, if he had anything to do about Danny Jace's death and ask him about anarchy, you know, maybe, you know, work on your people skills a little bit. Because when, when, when the Batman of Gotham City interrogates, he's got a certain method that works. Jace is still working on his people skills. Whether you, whether you use fear or manipulation or whatever, you, you gotta, you gotta figure out a better way to maybe get some answers. And so it clearly that's what's going on in that respect. Now, Meanwhile, the other the other uh, thing that John writer John Ridley is doing here that I think is is quite well, he's continuing to develop the characters of the J, of the Fox family, and this issue focuses on Tiffany uh, Fox. And Tiffany was the one that she was actually paralyzed for a while. In fact, Tiffany is the one uh, she's slowly recovering, and she's in school. And one of her friends by the name of Kalen is being sort of sucked into becoming a gang member, and she doesn't want her friend to do that, and. Um, and part of that is uh, part of the the issue is Tiffany's. You know, she wants she seeks the advice of her mother and her brother Jace. And Jace is a little bit Jace is Jace kind of has a bug up his chimney, and he's, he does she doesn't get a lot of great advice from him. And the mother tries to help her through it. And but ultimately, at the end, uh, Tiffany uh, ends up being confronted by another gang member telling her to stay away from Kaylin. She's going to become part of the gang now. Mind your own business. And so there's that going on. And what I find really kind of interesting, but a little bit kind of a 
criticism is that this Tiffany, who is basically a recovering paraplegic for crowd, for God's sakes, she is, she dons a, a jumpsuit and suddenly she, we're, we're to believe that she knows how to fight and she's going to be like a little, she's going to be like a crime fighter and she's going to take on the gangs of New York City. I mean, this is ridiculous, but I know it's a comic book, of course, and I know it's a Batman comic, especially, but this just seems like a little bit of a stretch, but I can get a lot of pushback because Lord knows Bruce Wayne has a bunch of family members that like to hop, you know, have their nocturnal activities are all the same, hopping from building to building. I just thought this was a little bit hard to believe this recovering paraplegic is suddenly going to be hopping around, uh, you know, trying to save her friend. But but that's that's part of her characterization. She desperately wants to give something back. She wants to help people. And that's part of her character. I think it's a little bit overplayed, but I'll give uh, Rid- uh, Ridley some props for exploring that. Uh, as far as uh, the, the main story itself, Jason the que- the, and the question do manage to uh, interrogate Detective Keenan. Detective Keenan does appear to be guilty at first, but then he reveals that Danny Chan was actually an undercover cop. And so we still don't know who killed Anarchy then, because that's still a mystery. And so um, basically this issue ends with, again, with Tiff- with uh, Tiffany donning this jumpsuit being the next, I don't know, mini Robin, maybe, who, who knows, maybe she's going to be, you know, Jace Fox's Batman's Robin, who knows. Uh, and, um, and we still don't know who killed Anarchy, so that 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 mystery's building. So overall, here I thought the I thought the the character work continues to continues to build here. Again, I'm the jury's still out in terms of how I feel about Tiffany maybe being the next potential Robin. Although it's maybe kind of cool, she's a little bit more likable than Damien was at, at certain times. So maybe, maybe there's that. But I can also see her getting a little bit annoying if she doesn't. Uh, you know, if she doesn't reel it in a bit because she seems to be a little bit overzealous. She reminds me a little bit like Stephanie Brown was early on. Stephanie Brown was so overzealous it ultimately led to her being killed by Black Mask. And so I, I worry about Tiffany biting off more than she can chew at the end of this issue by donning those uh by donning that sweatsuit and hopping the build hopping around buildings. But uh what do you think? Well, wasn't it Tamara that was hurt by what? Ratcatcher and was the one that was <laughs> Was it right? was it Tammy? Okay. Yeah, it was Tammy. It, yeah, so well, that's why she's got my, the cane when she's sitting there talking to Tiff. Yeah, I don't think Tiff was ever the one that was hurt. Okay. Be that as it may. My, my criticism still stands. I just yeah, got the name yeah, wrong. But. Yes, 100%. Why yeah. is it that all these young people in the bat <laughs> orbit are, are all, you know, have the ability to leap from buildings and swing on cables <laughs> and whatever? Why? Because comics. So yeah. whatever. Um, yeah. This is a bit of a setup issue. And as I mentioned uh, when I was doing the credits – Super dialogue heavy. Um, and I guess it, it's been a while since we've had one of these from Ridley, an issue that's just a, an info dump. So I guess we were sort of due. It's also great to see Rene Montoya as the question. We know based on the fact that there's that Gotham City Blue Wall series coming that I mentioned earlier that she's not going to take the job as commissioner of New York City uh, Police Department. She's going to go back to Gotham, which is fine, but being able to see her as question um, – I really enjoy. I know there's people that don't like her as question and, and, you know, prefer the Vic Sage version, but I, I like it. I like Ren, Renee Montoya as a character. She's complex. She's interesting. And I like that she's calling Jason on his, on his crap, basically, you know, like at the beginning when they're talking about Detective Keenan and Jason's like, well, I just know. She's like, dude, you need proof. Like it doesn't work like that, yeah. you know, uh, and, and this is, 
partly to do with R- Renee's background as being a police officer, you know, innocent until proven guilty. And, you know, yes, she may have the persona of this vigilante, the question, but she's still going to try to do things the right way so that ultimately the, the final outcome is the one you want, not somebody that you know is guilty walking free because you don't have any proof. So I do enjoy the interaction. She's kind of mentoring Jace in a lot of ways. Um, Jace is sort of up his own butt in this issue, especially when he's talking to Tiff about what's going on. I do like that Ridley's bringing that up in terms of being able to save somebody. And he goes back to that theme time and again here in this issue where, you know, Tiff's even at the center that the Fox family has, um, has founded that's supposed to help people. And when Tiff goes to talk to Kaylin, this friend of hers that, you know, maybe falling back into the game, uh, the gang life. Uh, Caitlin says, "Were well, you gonna, you're gonna save me? Or are you gonna save that person? What about that person? What about that person? What about that person?" And it sort of echoes something that Jace said earlier because it was a lesson that he had to learn. You can only do what you can do. You're only one man, um, and or one woman or one kid. In the case of of Tiff, you do what you can, but at the end of the day, you can't save everybody. And that's an interesting aspect of the story that Ridley is kind of putting out there uh, very clearly. Like, you know, how much can you do? How much is too much? Uh, you have the issue, the incident with Tamara that happened with her being, um, you know, almost paralyzed with uh, being caught by and held hostage by rat catcher. So, you know, there's that part of the story. Could Tiff be heading down that same path to possibly put herself in danger? We still have the stuff going on with Detective Chubb and this Mueller character who came over from Gotham City who has an issue with men apparently. So there's a lot of complex personal relationship stuff that Ridley plants here. It makes sense with what his background is as a screenwriter and, and whatnot. Um, these are, these characters are real. They're flawed. They're faceted. Nobody's a hundred percent good. Nobody's a hundred percent bad. Um, but he is planting some seeds here for Mueller who does also happen to be Jewish. It's clear in one of the panels, she's wearing a star of David around her neck. So what could go on there? Maybe it's, you know, prejudicing against her because she's um, Jewish. We don't know. Um, there is uh, some hints here that maybe Detective Keenan wasn't behind the murder of Chan. Uh, he claims that Chan was uh, an informant for them. So could he not be as bad as he's been portrayed? Uh, you know, I think he's probably still 80% scumbag, but maybe there's more to him <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Than, than meets the eye. So we'll see how that all plays out. So again, a bit of a setup issue. Uh, I do agree with Rocky that it's a, a little tropey to have Tiff um, because I, I did mention she seemed to be de-aged at some point. She seemed to be like almost the same height and age as Tamara when she first was drawn in the book. Maybe yeah. that was a, an, an editorial mistake. Maybe that was just a mistake that the uh, initial artist on the book made and then Ridley was like, no, you know, we need to make this change because she's about to become – Maybe Jace Fox's version of Robin. I don't know, but if there's anything that I don't like about the story, it, it does seem a bit tropey um, to go there. Uh, and I, I probably can. And it's you know, I know this is superhero comics, but it does kind of stretch the realism of it. You know, as Rocky's fond of yeah. saying, it lacks verisimilitude uh, in some ways. <laughs> but uh, but I do, and I am enjoying this series as I've said many times before, as soon as it got out of Gotham, got Jace Fox out from under the shadow of Bruce Wayne, I feel like this series has really kind of hit its stride. 
Uh, also, the Christian Duce art is fantastic, along with Edward Panseca and, and Julio Ferreira. Uh, it's, it really was hard for me to tell who did what pages. Um, so that's a credit to both artists that it, it works on that level. The colors are fantastic also. So, uh, All right. Up next, we have Batman Urban Legends. Five stories this time. Really long issue. Like, it felt longer than usual. 72 pages, uh, 68 pages. So I'm not sure if that's how it usually is, but signal and the outsiders part two, which you know feels like a full hang, full length story, a little bit of a shorter story, um, Batman, tiny hands in the dark, then a very short story by Joey Esposito called Batman and two face and call it with art by Mikhail Yanin. Uh, then a continuation of the Pennyworth files chapter two, and then Batman and killer croc in Leatherbound from Brandon Easton, which also was a full length story. So, I'll go through them really quickly. The Signal and the Outsiders, written by Bratton and Thomas, Alberto Jimenez Albuquerque on art, John Kalis on color, Steve Wands on letters. Uh, I liked the first part of the story a lot more than Rocky did. It uh, definitely focuses on the Signal. It definitely focuses on the Outsiders, which Brandon Thomas has written a lot of this version of the Outsiders. Um, and we've talked in the past about, or at least I have, about how great I like this new iteration of the Outsiders. You've got the Signal. You've got Black Lightning, you've got Metamorpho, you've got Katana, and that fifth uh, person that's a member of the Outsiders rotates, whoever happens to need help. Um, this time it's sort of flipped on its side because Batman, it's Bruce Wayne who's the fifth member this time. He doesn't necessarily need help, but what we saw in the first part of the story is that he apologizes to uh, to Duke Thomas, the signal, who's been kind of burning the candle at both ends to the point of exhaustion and the point of, of making mistakes when he's out there, which is, you know, kind of a life and death situation. Uh, and Bruce apologizes for never having solved the the problem with Duke's mother, you know, when she was inf- infected with the Joker toxin way back at the end of Scott Snyder's run of, of Batman. So he joins the outsiders. He says, we're going to work on this case until it's resolved. And we do to get the resolution of this uh, in this particular issue. I won't get into the details, I did enjoy it, and and part of what I enjoyed the most, uh, I've talked before about not being the biggest Duke Thomas fan because he feels very vanilla to me. It's not really any hook or any point of reference for me to relate to him. But what happens at the end of this issue, at once his mother has been rescued, uh, he shares with her the fact that that she's the signal. So throughout this two-part story, the whole story has been narrated by Duke Thomas himself with these yellow dialogue boxes. And what we find out at the end is this has been Duke sort of keeping a journal. uh, And then he shares that journal with his mother uh, when she's in the hospital recovering. So um, I did, I did really enjoy that. Um, I, I, it's sort of a weird place to end though, with the final panel being her holding this uh, tablet. And the first line is dear mama, there's a part of me missing. There is a part of me missing was the first line in the first panel of the first part of the story. And then it ends and you see Elaine Thomas holding this, uh, this uh, tablet reading this and there's a tear coming down her eye. So clearly very emotional, interesting place to end. I hope we get more outsiders and, and more of a chance to see what her reaction is to, to Duke Thomas. I imagine she's got to be worried for her son being out there, you know, fighting against uh, superpower criminals and whatnot. So, so that was pretty interesting. The second story, Batman, Tiny Hands in the Dark, Zach Thompson's writer, Hayden Sherman, artist, Dave Stewart on colors, Clem Robbins on letters. It's a ventriloquist story where he's trying to get out from under uh, Scarface, the normal um, puppet he uses 
or dummy he uses. And it, it's kind of interesting. It's, it's kind of creepy and kind of weird, which you sort of expect from Zach Thompson. So I guess it works on that level. I really did enjoy the Batman Two-Face story from Joey Esposito. Again, it's very short and just kind of focuses on who Two-Face is and why he might be going leaning toward redemption. We've talked about that. I've talked about, you know, I think we I asked you last time we did um, a Task Force Z issue. Like, when did he start to try to redeem himself? Why? <laughs> yeah. uh, I know he was in Detective recently. So th- this kind of talks about that, the weight of the yeah. coin and whatnot. So Joey Esposito, he's been doing a lot of work lately for DC and a lot of these anthologies. And I, I, really, I think he did a f- fantastic job on this. Plus, the art by Mikel Yanin is, is great. My favorite story in it is the Pennyworth Chapter 2. From Chris Burnham, he does the story in the art. Nathan Fairbairn on colors, Russ Wooten on letters. Every time – so Alfred is continuing to investigate this crime that he was sort of caught up in with this girl Millie being in trouble. And the further – the more he tries to help her, the fur, further he gets pull, pulled in and it's a bigger story and a bigger conspiracy. And he knows he's in over his head, but every time he tries to call Batman, Chris Burnham gives us a great panel of Batman being in the middle of something, whether it's – you know basically submerged in lava or about to be cut in half by a giant saw blade or falling from a blimp thousands of feet in the air. Uh, so invariably uh, Alfred's on his own. So, you know, with Alfred returning, uh, this is great that this is coming out to speak as well. Cause it's just a really, really fun story. Uh, the Batman killer croc Leatherbound, written by Brandon Easton. Will Robson is the artist, Matt Herms on colors, Travis Lanham on letters. It's pretty much a straightforward killer croc story was sort of a mystery of who's behind it. Batman solves it. You can kind of see it coming, who's behind it. Um, there's a little bit of misdirection here or there from Brandon Easton, uh, but it felt like very standard Batman fare. Uh, if you're a Killer Croc fan, you'll probably really, really enjoy it. But it was a solid story, but I didn't think it was really that memorable. So, uh, all right. What do you have to say about these particular stories in this issue? I, I'm Honestly, the, the only one that uh, – I thought they were all filler Issue, stories. The, the one, the only one I'll comment on is the signal because I think it's the most significant. I think it's the most significant long term because it actually says something about the character. I thought it was emotional. I thought it was moving, and I thought I thought the first part of the signal story. Frankly, I thought it was. I didn't think it was good at all. But this really was a about face for me because um, it was it was just well done. Now I will say that, you know, um, we, we actually, I think it was about a year ago. We, we actually got a series. We got a two issue signal series that sort of ended abruptly. It wasn't really, it wasn't well done. It was a little bit convoluted and it didn't really say much about the character. It sort of gave him, it sort of tried to explain what his powers were in a very, uh, incoherent manner. And nothing was done about his parents. Nothing was done, done about it. Finally, we get, finally, after all this time, he actually rescues his mother. Now, uh, if I'm being really critical, I should say that his mother should stay either dead or harmed, permanently harmed by the Joker toxin because every, you know, there's so many different versions of the Joker toxin. How did his mother come out of it and none of these other victims do? Well, the other victims have a different form of Joker toxin. But somehow it seems a little bit kind of forced that his mother gets cured. But um, I think it would have I think it always added an element of tragedy to Duke's character that his parents were the victim of the Joker and maybe should remain that way. But the fact that his mother's now cured is uh, I think that's an it's it's on the one hand, it's a little bit of a cheat because I think 
I, all these bad characters, I think when they have a little bit of, 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 a, of a dark background, I think they're more compelling. On the other hand, there's something about Duke Th- Thomas. I found myself rooting for him because it took so damn long to deal with his mother. Uh, I'm glad that he did. And I'm glad we got a happy ending. Uh, and uh, I don't know. <laughs> you know. It's funny. It's like I'm a sucker for a happy ending. And here I kind of thought it was a little bit of a cheat, but I'm glad it was. And so um, Brandon Thomas, it's nice to see him land a story here because I, I think he's had a I he's had some significant misses with me with his work on Aquaman and uh and uh the becoming and what what have you and and Aquaman and so I actually I'm I liked his work here. I, I've I've enjoyed more of his work on the outsiders here and particularly with Duke Thomas and I wish this was a two issue series. I wish this two stories would have been the two issues of the signal that we would get. But uh oh, pr- pretty good. I'm I'm impressed with that story. Yeah, like I said you didn't care for the first issue um yeah. the first part of the story so i guess it it he brought it back around with that he did uh, yeah. and and yeah and in fairness she might not be the only one cured it seemed like a lot of the people were cured she's the only one that we followed you're, you're right you're right yeah, yeah. Not, not but yeah i do yeah. It, it is certainly a change because in the past i mean that was the whole tragedy right like mm. they weren't able to cure her like she had to be locked up in arkham all those people yeah. did so it is sort of a the next day, a smock, and I thought all of a sudden, hey, guess what? Now she's cured. Why? Because reasons. So anyway. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, up next, uh, yeah, I've, maybe you feel differently. I really didn't care for this next book. It's uh, The Flash, The Fastest Man Alive, issue number one. You'll notice right away, uh, if you're looking at the cover, uh, if you're watching us on YouTube, that it's a very different logo for The Flash. Well, that's the logo for the the movie. And obviously, uh, if you're a DC fan or a Warner Brothers fan, you'll know the controversy and the constant debacle that is uh, Ezra Miller for a constant headache he's been for Warner Brothers with this crazy, like literally insane behavior where he can't seem to control himself, getting arrested, getting uh, restraining orders left and right, uh, just, just constant problems. But despite all that, and despite the fact that Warner Brothers Discovery, David Zaslav, seems to be willing to cancel anything at the drop of a hat for tax purposes, The Flash is still a go. So I don't know what incriminating photos the, uh, Ezra Miller has with <laughs> David Zaslav, but uh, this is still a go. And so this is supposed to be a prequel to uh, to that film. Now, before he went completely off the rails and went crazy <laughs> – uh, I'd seen Ezra Miller in a few different things, and I, I enjoyed him. I thought he was a good actor. Uh, he was likable. Um, I didn't care for his version of, of Barry Allen that we got from the Snyderverse, but that's not a surprise. I didn't really care much for anything Zack Snyder did in the DC Universe or otherwise. Mm. I think he's a hack. I think he's a terrible filmmaker. I think he doesn't understand story. <laughs> and I think he's an incredible – I think he's an incredible <laughs> cinematographer. Wow. And I think – He's got an incredible eye for giving gorgeous pictures on the screen that hit yeah. with emotion and are, are beautiful to look at. And he really has a, a you know, so it's, he's, he's not without talent, but in terms of, you know, storytelling, no. And, and Grant, I haven't seen everything the guy's done, but I did watch Sucker Punch and found it to be nearly unwatchable in terms of story, <laughs> but... In, in terms of the hey, visuals, the women were great. hot, man. They were hot, right? Yeah, it's great <laughs> eye candy, but terrible story. And then when you talk about you know his version of these DC characters, whether he's 
doing it on his own or with David Goyer. Yeah, the guy clearly missed the forest for the trees in terms of, you know, who these characters are. And I'm not going to get into it. I've talked about it many, many times. I'm just, I'm not a fan of him. Uh, and I think it sets a, it set an extremely dangerous precedent, sort of like negotiating with terrorists to give all the Snyder, crazy, toxic Snyder fans what they wanted with this, <laughs> you know, Snyder cut, which was just what? bloated and, yeah. you know, okay, two hours of a bad movie. Now I've got four hours of a movie. It's still bad, whatever. And and Warner Brothers Discovery, to their credit, has come out and said it was a mistake to give into that as well. There shouldn't be any more Snyder stuff. So all that to say, I did not like the version of Barry Allen that we got in the movie. Were there some funny moments? Did Ezra Miller do a good job with what he had? Yeah, you could make that argument. But to me, it's just not – I mean, already I think there's a lot of people that have an issue with Barry Allen. They think he's boring, and that's why Wally West is so popular as The Flash. So when you talk about doing a, a version of Barry Allen for a wider audience, it needs to be something interesting. It needs to be something different and have a hook more than just, okay, we're going to decide to make Barry Allen this socially awkward character who doesn't have any friends and sort of lean into some tropey stuff about, you know, autism or somebody on the spectrum or whatever, like not only boring and reductive to the character, but a little bit disrespectful in a lot of ways. Um, so again, didn't like that version at all. Now we're getting that version in a comic to sort of set the tone or set the story up for the new movie, which I'm going to have a hard time going in and watching that movie. Every time Ezra Miller is going to be on the screen, all I'm going to be thinking in the back of my head is this crazy and insane behavior that the guys exhibited for the last year and a half. So, I mean, I, I'm of the opinion you'd cut them out of the movie. Again, I didn't want to take money out of anybody's you know, or bread out of anybody's mouth or money out of anybody's pocket. But the guy sort of did it to himself. And I, I, you know, if you're willing to give Zack Snyder $70 million to double the length of Justice League, basically, why wouldn't you, you know, fix this atrocity? Um, the answer is, like I said earlier, Warner Brothers Discovery is making every decision in the interest of saving money. So it, it's total corporate speak and a total cop out and irresponsible in my mind um, to not cut Ezra Miller out and reshoot his scenes with a different actor, recast the role. Um, <laughs> but, you know, again, all Warner Brothers Discovery cares about is the bottom line and it's cheaper to just, you know, release it. But what does it say to all the people that have been harassed or um, have had their life negatively impacted by Ezra Miller that he – because he's an actor and because he's in this movie, because he had this role, he's more important than you. Like he doesn't, he's not receiving the same level of punishment. His life's not negatively impacted. He gets to go and make, you know, whatever amount of money he gets to make from this movie just because he's famous and because he's an actor again, bad, bad precedent all around. Um, and in my, in my opinion, DC shouldn't have even released this comic and it, it would have been, um, how can I put this? Uh, it, it wouldn't have been missed if you know what I'm saying, because there's not really much here. It, it yeah. wasn't particularly interesting. I get, I get it. Like you're, you're writing a comic about this version of Barry Allen. That's not particularly interesting either. Yeah. So, you know, the creative team, I feel like they, they sort of had a really, really hard job to make this version of the flash interesting. Um, and I, I, and the art they is failed. my favorite. They style. failed. They failed. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. This is the story. <laughs> this is kind of boring. boring. This is yeah. really boring. 
that's the word that immediately springs to mind. Boring. There's nothing memorable about it. I didn't think the art was particularly good. Um, I will say that the storytelling was, was solid. Um, but the, the art style from Ricardo Lopez Ortiz is, is, is only okay. This is written by Kenny Porter. Who's, who's done some anthology work recently for DC as well. And frankly, his, his other stuff has been better than this. Cause again, this just, yeah, it's boring, but it, I, I really feel bad for Porter and Lopez Ortiz. Cause the, again, this was an, an impossible task um, to make this version of Barry Allen uh, memorable. And they, they got this, assignment i'm assuming a long time ago like before all the crazy stuff with ezra Ezra miller happened uh, i just feel bad for them that their names are even associated with this uh fajardo jr does the colors the colors are fine steve wands does letters letters are fine but yeah like setting aside the whole insanity of ezra miller and the sort of inherent problems of that like if none of that had happened and i was just talking about this book in a vacuum yeah the word i would say was yeah it's boring so what'd you think uh, well, let me just talk more about the specific the, the, the specific plot of the comic itself. It, it, it's actually not necessarily that bad. And that if it, it deals with the Flash, if you think of the Snyder version of the Flash, and, and I won't comment about, look, I didn't mind the Snyderverse, but I, I, I'm, I'm glad it's past this, okay? It is, Snyder is what Snyder is. We don't need to, you know, you, you your, your comments, I neither agree nor disagree, you know, at this point, really. Uh, having said all that, the Snyderverse Flash is one that wasn't particularly competent and he wasn't a very good fighter. If you recall, in the movie, Flash really looked to Batman, uh, Ben Affleck's Batman, for guidance. You know, he didn't even know how to rescue anybody and Batman told him, go one at a time, one at a time. I mean, the Flash is an idiot in the Snyderverse. And this Flash really is, continues to be an idiot in this story. So in that respect, writer Kenny Porter actually got it pretty right. Flash is so stupid, he attacks Girder, this villain Girder, and literally shatters and breaks his hands because he's he's hitting an indestructible girder, uh, and he's got a and he sort of stumbles upon a way to use the speed force to create a power punch. But it literally takes him all thirty eight pages of this long drawn out story to figure out how to do that. And so there's a lot of superfluous sort of dialogue here. And I got to say this this is definitely more of Ben Affleck's Batman. So when you're reading this. I'm so used to comic book Batman that this doesn't sound like Batman to me. But when I think that this is Ben Affleck's Batman in this story, it makes more sense to me because the Ben Affleck Batman in this, the Snyderverse Batman was more accommodating, was more helpful to the Flash to try to help Flash through and become a become a hero uh, in the uh, at least in Superman v Batman and in and in the Justice League and the and the and then the Justice League four hour version whatever. But but you, you we don't learn anything about it. If this is a movie tie in, first of all. Uh, I mean, respectfully to Ricardo Ortiz, the writer, this, this art is not up to Kenny stuff. Porter. Well, Kenny, Kenny Porter is the writer. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Ricardo Ortiz is the, is the artist. Ricardo, and yeah. I don't think that the, I don't think the art's up to snuff. Uh, frankly, I can't believe that, uh, if this was done a long time ago and, and you, you want to create hype for the Flashpoint movie, how can you assign such, like this should be an A-list artist. I say that with great respect to Ortiz. This is serviceable, but it's not 
This is just not up to task. Plus, what does it tell us? Why is this a movie tie-in? Is Girder going to be in the movie? I hope not, because it's kind of a boring character. Uh, I mean, there's, it, there's, there's really not a lot to look forward to here. My only defense, uh, and I'll end this, but of the, of the Flashpoint movie, of the reason why they pro- it might be a good idea to have it, notwithstanding the BS going on with uh, the actor's legal problems, is the fact that it might end with a, a, a multiverse. You know, It might end actually bringing in a new multiverse, DC multiverse, for future movies. That's the, that's the thing that I'm hoping for, that if, if this is going to be the end of the Snyderverse, great. I got no problem with that, but maybe it'll hearken in and show us hints of a broader multiverse uh, where we get maybe some things that are the same, like Wonder Woman and Aquaman uh, because of Jason Momoa and Gal Gadot. And and maybe some of the other things, like, of course, <laughs> The Flash will be played by a different actor. So, you know, I think DC is trying to suck and blow at the same time and whether or not they pull it off, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, if you're hoping that you're going to pull in movie fans, then wouldn't you want, you know, the best art possible to really hook people? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not that. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and I want to be clear that, uh, you know, just because I'm not a fan of the, the Snyderverse, you know, uh, hey, more power to Zack Snyder to get all the work he can get and create all the content he can create. I'm just not a fan of any of that content. I'm not going to go enjoy any of that content, but great that his fans get to, you know, and he's built a community and, and, you know, more power to him. Uh, again, I'm not looking to take money out of anybody's pocket or food out of anybody's mouth. Um, I just don't want him to do any DC stuff. Cause personally, I don't like what he does. Yeah. So uh, I will leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Jurassic league number five written by Juan Gideon and Daniel Warren Johnson art by Juan Gideon colors by Mike Spicer letters by Farron Delgado. I uh, really feel like this is coming together, you know, as much as, again, we, we struggle to see. Who, who is the audience for this? Because when you talk about <laughs> recasting Justice League members as dinosaurs, it definitely feels like it's for a younger audience. But then at the same time, we've got uh, a lot of violence, uh, not not blood, but, uh, you know, a ton of violence here. Um, and Dark Side made his appearance as the big bad last issue. And here he goes up against Wonder Dawn, who's this – uh, just Triceratops version of Wonder Woman. Dark Side is headed to Trimesca uh, to take out the Amazons. <laughs> She's forced. She tries to get Superman to help her. He says, no, I need to, uh, or Supersaurus to help her. And Supersaurus says, no, I need to stay back and protect my family. And so she goes off on her own. And then uh, the human who found Supersaurus when he landed shows him his ship, shows him the, sort of dinosaur of dinosaur like creature that was his father, the recording of it. Supersaurus realizes he he's gotta go and help Wonder Dawn and it <laughs> sets the stage for this final confrontation with Dark Side. Meanwhile, uh the Joker Zard is is Joker slash lizard uh is back on the mainland and about to attack the human settlement. Supersaurus no longer there to protect it. Um but the Batman version, I don't even remember what he's called um, yeah. <laughs> is there to, to come and save the day. And that's how the, the issue ends. So uh, this is fun. I, I think it's moving at a fast pace now, kind of where it should have been all along. This particular issue is all action. I get the challenge of introducing these characters and, and 
kind of having it make sense because uh, it is something brand new uh, that Gideon and Daniel Warren Johnson have, have had. Um, and I feel like halfway through last issue, they sort of hit their stride and this issue keeps it up. This was my, by far my favorite issue of the series so far, because we're just getting action. We're not getting, um, I don't want to say useless characterization, but they're not necessarily spending time trying to, uh, show that these characters, even though they're dinosaur or prehistoric versions of the characters we know, we're not getting you know, time spent by the writers showing us where they act like their uh, human counterpart, right? Like, yeah. hey, let me show you this character moment to prove that this version of Batman that's half dinosaur or, or all dinosaur, but yet anthropomorphized <laughs> is really, you know, heroic or whatever. No, we just show us through their actions. Um, but I get why they did it the way that they did it. But uh Again, I don't think I'm necessarily the target audience for this. I think despite, despite all the violence, it is aimed at a younger reader. Um, but I thought this was just a really well put together issue. I thought the art, art worked really well. And, uh, again, favorite issue of the series so far. What did you think? Uh, I, this was just a bundle of fun. I just, I, I think every single issue, every time we review this issue, I say the same thing. I'm going to see it again. I want to own the action figures for this guy. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this, but it just looks, it looks like it would be so much fun to play with the action figures on this thing. It brings out the little boy in me. It's just, it's, it's so fun. This, this issue, the, the Jurassic League finally comes together and becomes united. This is the formative issue where they finally come together and realize that they got to fight together to win. And of course, the, uh, first of all, I have to compliment you, Jace. I think you, you, you named all the characters and you pronounced them all correctly, something which I am incapable of doing, so I won't even try. So my compliments to you, my friend. But I, I love this issue that the dinosaur version of Superman, I thought is, is just cool. I mean, <laughs> how, how it's all tied together is just a lot of fun. And it's worth pointing out that, I mean, uh, uh, apparently to some of the future DC solicits, there's going to be in a couple months a DC, uh, Big Bang issue number one, written by Mark Wade. I think it's in the in the solicits for it. They they tease that apparently this isn't the last we're going to be seeing of the Jurassic League. Like so, this is we're going to be seeing more of this now. What <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but um, we're going to be seeing more of this. And you know, clearly, maybe we're getting some hints in terms of the different eclectic in, in iterations of the Justice League that we're going to be seeing in a in a in the DC universe post. Uh, post dark crisis, uh, uh, whether we like it or not, but I like this Daniel Warren Johnson kind of uh, style of art. Uh, I, I think, uh, I think it has its place. Uh, of course, I, I loved his, uh, Dead Earth, Wonder, Wonder Woman, Dead Earth. I'll always, that's one that'll always remain, at least until future notice, my, probably my favorite Wonder Woman story or Elseworlds Wonder Woman story. And so I really like this. This is, this is a lot of fun. This is, this is, on the one hand, you know, it's funny how you and I, we talk about Batgirls and maybe how that's written to a younger audience. And then here I turn to Justice League and clearly this is written for a younger audience. And yet I'm having so much more fun when I read this only because it's it's not trying to be something it isn't. It embraces its tropes. It embraces its stereotypes. It embraces the absolute insanity of it. I mean, and it's not trying to re reinvent the wheel. The wheels just happen to be dinosaurs. <laughs> so so it, it's fun and it is what it is. And it doesn't pretend to be something it's not. So uh, I think it's, uh, you know, I'm picking up every issue of this series. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm not buying the physical copies, but yeah, it, yeah. it is enjoyable. And I don't know that I, I don't know if I would buy a Super Source figure. I would have to see it first. <laughs> well, I, I, if, if, if McFarlane did it, I probably would. You know, McFarlane. Yeah, I might better. have to see it. Might have to see it first before I commit. <laughs> so, anyway, on to the last individual issue for this uh, episode: Wonder Woman seven ninety one. Farrell, Part 1, uh, Michael W. Conrad, Becky Cloonan on script, Marguerite Savage does the art, Pat Brosso on letters, Yannick Paquette and Nathan Fairbairn uh, on the cover. And then we've got a brilliant cover by Paul Pope and Jose Villarubia. Uh, yeah, what do you think? Um, I've got uh, – well, first I want to – I'll just show off some uh, – I don't mind the variant cover here. I'm not sure who does the variant cover, but it's with Cheetah. And it actually looks kind of decent. I don't mind it. I love Gillian Mar March does a cover with, with for the Harley Quinn 30th anniversary cover. Uh, I just, I just love March. I think he's, he brings a certain type of eclectic sensuality to the, to his drawings. And when he, when he draws women and it, it reminds me a little bit of that Italian artist, Milo M Manara, a little bit, not as good as Manara, but he's sort of reminiscent of that. So uh, I sort of like that. So I'll be picking up that alternative cover and uh, my apologies uh, for those listening on the podcast. I don't know who does the cover for the fourth artist, but those watching can maybe tell me who it is. But uh, <laughs> in any event, I, I don't, I don't mind the varying covers here. As for the story, I've had uh, – I'm always challenging myself in terms of how I can diplomatically review this. I just – I just I, I, I remain frustrated. But I will say this. This is probably out of a series of very disappointing Wonder Woman comics over the last year. This is probably one of the slightly better ones because we're finally getting some – we're finally getting, in my view, just a, maybe a little bit more interesting, a, a plot line. Wonder Woman is basically – Wonder Woman in this issue uh, basically talks to Hippolyta. She goes to the Vale of Hippolyta. Hippolyta tells her, you know, Hippolyta, we, as we know, Hippolyta felt she needed to sacrifice herself in order to inspire the Amazons to unite, while at the same time, by sacrificing herself, that allowed her to become a goddess to better represent the Amazons among, amongst the Olympic, among, amongst the gods of Olympus. And so that's what, Hippolyta is doing and Hippolyta is also make is battling the machinations of Hera who uh, is has got some master plan working with chaos to I'm sure make Wonder Woman's life miserable but in the meantime so there's a lot of dialogue here a lot of superfluous dialogue reminding readers what went on in past issues and um one of the one of the characters from the Esquisita tribe, this An Anahi, Anahi, who is an oracle of the Esquisita tribe, which is the Amazonian tribe that Yara Flor, Wonder Girl, comes from, she shares with Wonder Woman a vision that she's had, and uh, Wonder Woman utilizes the magic lasso to be able to see the vision that the oracle has. A power, I might add, that the magic lasso is not supposed to have. That's that's another new one. So once again, a little bit of a pet peeve of mine. Writers coming along thinking, "Well, let me let me create another power that the magic lasso has. That if you touch the magic lasso, it doesn't just make you see the truth. I can see what you've been dreaming." Well, no, it doesn't have that power. But Clunrad, you know, they're they're they've made up something new again. But not a you know whatever. Uh, Wonder Woman. I mean, why did Wonder? Why do you need to bastardize the history of the magic lasso? Why not just let Anahi tell you what 
your dream is. But again, I'm nitpicking, but I'm a long-time Wonder Woman fan. I, I sort of long for a little bit of consistency here. I don't like creating new stuff just because you're out of ideas. Um, but again, I'm maybe being a little bit harsh, but Wonder Woman uh, has the same vision then because she's reading the vision of Anahi and and there's she has a vision of these this particular plant, this poisonous plant in Brazil that's being utilized for nefarious purposes. And she travels to Brazil. And I should say that in the vision, Wonder Woman sees the eyes of Cheetah. So she thinks that Barbara Minerva is the central villain behind this, this unknown machinations taking place in Brazil. Wonder Woman makes her way to Brazil with the help of Ada Candy and ultimately um, discovers that it is Kale Industries is behind the manufacturing and the processing of this sort of plant this poisonous plant, and we're not really sure what the purpose is, but when I say kale industries, it is, of course, a reference to Veronica Kale. And Veronica Kale is an arch nemesis of Wonder Woman, who was uh, created by Greg Rucka during his uh, classic run. And Veronica Kale is uh, uh, in, the, in, in Rebirth, in, in the famous Lies storyline, or the classic now, I think an instant classic Lies storyline, Veronica Kale uh, ultimately ended up... Uh, her daughter ended up being rescued by by Wonder Woman, uh, who was uh, and Veronica Kale's daughter is now is an actually an Amazon who can't leave Paradise Island because if she just because of the way that particular storyline ended, if she leaves Paradise Island, I believe she'll die or some damn thing. But in any event, Veronica Kale hates gods and she doesn't like Wonder Woman. And she's got a reason to hate the gods because the gods really treated her like shit and she's, she can really never see her daughter again because of the machinations of the gods. And um, frankly, she's got a very good reason not to like Wonder Woman as well. Uh, and so I'm glad that Veronica Kale is being brought back. I don't like the fact that Clunrad is doing, is doing it because Veronica Kale is a complex character that I, I, I'm, I'm really concerned about how she's going to be how she's going to be written here. The the juvenile way that they wrote Dr. Cycle on the most one mundane, one-dimensional, uh, chauvinist levels with no degree of sophistication or intelligence at all, but just as a buffoon, really concerns me how they're going to portray Veronica Kale. But Veronica Kale has an advantage over Dr. Cycle, and of course that's because she's a woman, and women do tend to be written better in Wonder Woman than men do, and uh, <laughs> and I mean that both as a positive and a negative. Uh, but I won't elaborate on that because I don't want this to become a rant. Suffice to say, I do think that there's some positives to take from this. Uh, one thing is uh, Murray's uh, um, Marguerite Sauvage. If I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, Jace uh, Sauvage's art. Uh, I, I enjoy that, and. Um, also, I enjoy that the cheetah's in it, and it looks like cheetah is being uh, held captive and being experimented on along with other animals with this poisonous plant. And I'm not sure where this is going, um, but I'm actually curious because already this is better than any of the plot threads that have come out of Clunrad, other than their opening issue way back post-death metal. So uh, what do you think? Yeah, I sort of felt like this was the tale of two comics, right? Like, I don't know. I mean, I guess because it's the first issue of a new arc, they wanted to have a recap. Yeah. But I was, I found myself a little bit frustrated, right? Because 
one of the things that was that I enjoyed about the end of the last arc um, was that Diana came walking into the room where everybody else is, and she was sort of in. All, I, I sort of was reminded of the mod days, right in the seventies when they took her powers away and made her very much inspired by Emma Peel from the Avengers. And I don't mean the Marvel Avengers. I mean, the British show, the yeah. Avengers uh, that was set in the sixties. Um, and it was a spy story. And so that was a way to, they felt like maybe they could reach a new audience. So they took her out of the wonder woman costume and took away her powers. And she was just like traveling around the world in this like super spy role. And that's sort of the, uh, you know, female James Bond, if you will. And that's sort of what I was reminded of when we got that, um, that image in, in the last uh, page of the last issue. Um, and so, yeah, I was like, okay, we're, we're taking her out of the costume. We're going to focus more on Diana Prince. Then we, this issue starts off. That's what I'm anticipating. And instead we get a recap of everything and very dialogue heavy, very expositional. We get a recap of everything that's happened in trial of the Amazons and Nubia and, and everything that's been going on in the wonder woman corner of the DCU, which again, if you're going to jump on and you're curious what's come before, um, First of all, I would say, don't worry about what's come before. Just jump on and move forward because that stuff hasn't been that interesting unless you're yeah. uh, really into political comics and, and really love Wonder Woman. But just jump on here and, and move forward. Um, so that was a little disheartening in a lot of ways. And then we get to the second half. Uh, and yeah, the pacing picks up and the exposition is not so um, voluminous. But we still get Wonder Woman – well, we get her in costume at first, and then she goes in undercover in disguise, but not in the way of, yeah. hey, her powers are gone or I'm a super spy. But why was that, by the way? Why, 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 would she, why would she wear a costume? Why would she, why would she dress up like Indiana Jones? Well, I mean, she got, yeah, she right? knocked that girl out. It made no out. sense. Yeah, she knocked that girl out and was like, I'm going to disguise myself. I'm going <laughs> to sneak in for re- – I guess for reasons. I, yeah. yeah, I mean – makes no sense. Why wouldn't she take the direct approach? I'm Wonder Woman. I'm powerful. I have my powers. You, again, you could understand why she did this stuff back in the day well, in that mod era, which definitely feels like the Clunrad uh, is trying to draw from. But remember, back then she had to go in disguise. She didn't have her powers. So yeah. why does why does she go well, undercover in this and with, world? And with the Esquisita, I mean, the Esquisita are with her, and they're all looking like they're looking tribal. They're not wearing different clothes. I, yeah, why the I, hell is Wonder Woman? Makes no sense. I. I it makes sense and if they're trying to evoke that previous era. Um, it doesn't make sense because she still has her powers. So, yeah, it's a little bit problematic. Um, but at, I, I, can't, I can't answer that question. I don't understand why. Oh, it's rhetorical. Um, it does, yeah. It does, you know, going back to something you said about um, the pre- previous uh, – issue that we covered, you know, DC's trying to suck and blow at the same time. That sort of feels like what this is. They're trying to have, you know, evoke the nostalgia of an undercover super spy Wonder Woman, but don't make her lose her powers. And I mean, let's face it, at the end of the day, it doesn't even make sense that Wonder Woman's isn't she dead or supposedly dead or sort of dead or in the happiness prison? Why is she even in her? But I mean, yeah, you can't think too much about the continuity or your head will explode. So take this for what it is on the surface. Is it an interesting story? Well, once you get past the recap of the first half of the book, it is it is interesting. Um, yeah. And I, I think, uh, you know, I'll give a lot of credit to the Marguerite Sauvage art, which her art tends to be a little esoteric at times and, and sort of very static. Um, oftentimes when I see her art, I think uh, – like, like I think back to – she did the 
the superwoman. Mm-hmm. Uh, or yeah, yeah, that's Future right. State of uh, Future State Superwoman, yeah. yeah. And I felt like every one of those pages would have been perfect for like a children's book, which have very static images. Yeah. Um, but they're not always the best in terms of conveying action. You know, the yeah. transition from panel to panel it feels yeah. very. What, static. what did you think of them here? I thought I thought they were less static here. I thought it was a little better. Oh yeah, that. yeah. Here it's yeah. night and day. It's night yeah. and day. Like I want if this is how Marguerite Sauvage is. So she is is sort of known for almost taking a fine art approach. And even though she does images that tend to be a little more static, um, they're very intricate and oftentimes very beautiful, very feminine, very soft at times. She colors her own work and you kind of a lot of light blues and pinks and yellows and greens. And it, it works very well. That's part of the reason she's done so much cover work. It was, it was sort of interesting to see her do that future uh, state superwoman story. Because again, it felt very like very static images that didn't really flow. Um, this shows that she definitely can do interior work that is visual storytelling because the transitions here are fantastic. The yeah. facial expressions are fantastic. The art feels a little bit, I don't want to say, I don't want to say softer because there's always a softness to her art, but it just doesn't feel as static. Um, particularly the page where she's fighting the two guy uh, or the guy and the girl where she kind of shoves her tablet in one of their faces and she's throwing elbows and grabbing guns and swinging them. And like that, the, the whole layout of the page lends itself to movement. Um, so I th- this is the best interior work that I've ever seen her do. Uh, yeah. And the color work is fantastic as well uh, because, again, she's leaning into a lot of the pinks and blues and whatnot that she's known for. So, yeah, this is some of my favorite, if not the best interior art I've ever seen her do. So I was really impressed with with what she did. Is the story interesting? Yes, the story is interesting once you get past that info dump at the beginning. So in a lot of ways, this gives me some hope for what's to come from Clunrad, if they can sort of, you know, and it's not perfect. Again, we talked about the whole idea of her going undercover. Why was it necessary or what have you? So, you know, we'll have to see, but if Marguerite Sauvage is going to bring this level of art and color uh, line and color work, I'll be, I'll be all for it. Um, The only other little thing, and this is a minor nitpick and in in no way has anything to do with the the creative team because we've seen this time and time again recently Cheetah is featured so prominently on most of these covers. Yeah. You know, not the Harley Quinn 30th anniversary, but the main, the main cover and the B cover. Um, but Cheetah doesn't show up till the like last panel. Um, but then again, we've seen, I, I think it was red X on a, on an issue of Teen Titans Academy was featured on the cover and was okay. like not even in a single panel of the comic. Yeah. Um, so, but you know, based on the fact that this story is called feral and, Cheetah was featured so prominently and, you know, we were told it was a new issue of uh, a new arc. I was like, oh, okay, it's going to be a Cheetah story. Well, it might still end up being a Cheetah story. Um, but, I mean, we didn't get Cheetah till like the last couple panels here. That, that I was a little disappointed in that. Um, yeah. So, overall, I thought it was a pretty solid issue. I just questioned the need for all that info dump at the beginning. Uh, and then as far as the um, the young Wonder Girl story at the end, uh, young Diana. Um, I've stopped reading those um, because like we've said from the beginning, they're so incongru- incongruous to what the main story is. Main story clearly for more mature readers, longtime DC readers know the history or whatever uh, of, of Wonder Woman. These young Diana stories are clearly, you know, a much simpler story. The art by Paulina Ganeshaw is, is it's art, that's in very much an animation style. 
like a cartoon style um, that would appeal to younger readers, which I think is great. I think Jordi Belair is, is doing a great job um, in terms of writing and pacing and whatnot for, uh, you know, she's known for her color work. She's proven herself as a writer here, meeting deadlines, that sort of thing. But I, I've stopped reading it because I feel like I can't really enjoy it or judge it because they're just, they're going for completely different objectives. And I find myself reading it and thinking about how simple it is compared to the more complex ideas of the main story. And I, I feel like I'm not giving it a fair shake. So yeah. I've kind of just stopped, stopped reading it. Um, yeah. And they, no. if they want to do, if they want to do this, they want to keep doing these young Diana stories, stop doing the backup, put, put out, you know, quarterly, a young Diana book, right? Because if, if it takes what, two and a half issues of backups to get, you know, a full 20 page comic because they're eight pages. That would be four times a year. So just yeah. put out the young Diana floppy or book, however you want to call it, comic. Just put it out four times a year. I, or, I think they did that already, or, Jace. I think they already did. They did a collection of the first bit. bit. I think they had a yeah, one, an 80 no, no, no. page. That's, that's no. What they did was they collected the entire first year into a trade paperback, which they could do okay. that also. Yeah. That was going to be my next point. Yeah. They, so just once a year, if you want to put this out, put it out once a year with, you know, the full 80 pages mm. or whatever it is, 86 pages, 80, 96 pages, whatever. Put it out once a year. Here's your trade paperback. Here's your original graphic novel, original content, young Diana. Put it out. But I know sometimes the uh, finances don't that, – that doesn't make financial sense, right? Like you need the monthly – income, the constant yeah. churn of comic, whatever. So if that's the case, then you could, you know, reduce the cost of your monthly Wonder Woman comic by taking the backup out of it. So it's less pages and putting out a young Diana book four times a year. So your overhead is lower. You know, again, granted, I know you're not going to get, you know, monthly income. You'd get that bump four times a year if it comes out four times a year. I'm sure you could make it work. If this, if this young Diana stuff is, uh, has enough of an audience that you're spending, you know, you're paying the creators to keep making it. There's got to be an audience for it, but it does not belong in the back of the Wonder Woman book. The stories are so wildly different. It does not belong at all. Yeah. Agreed. It would, it would fit better in like action comics, even, you know, where at least you're putting in a book that has nothing to do where you're not immediately comparing. I get why that's a challenge as well. People, well, I, I buy this for Superman. Why do I want? to read about Wonder Woman. I get that. I get that as well. Um, yeah. Why that would be a, a challenge. But the answer is take the backups out of all the books. Yeah. Nobody <laughs> wants them. Nobody asks for them. Nobody wants them. Nobody wants to be paying an extra dollar for content they don't want. It's not good that we don't even have the choice. Yeah. So anyway. no, it, it makes me wonder, you know, you know, just like with, the, with, with future state Gotham, it's all black and white. And I don't understand why it's black and white, but they're trying to hit to a manga crowd. I'm wondering if you want to try something really out there, why don't make young Diana? She's, you know, make her manga in black and white and put it out there and have a, I don't know, have a equivalent manga like Wonder Woman comic. Like, I mean, experiment. I mean, DC used to really experiment with stuff. I, I would think. You know, try something really, uh, you know, off the beaten path like that because maybe – because this just seems like the type of audience that a young Diana story 
told maybe a manga style, maybe that would attract, you know, that, that teenage crowd that they're trying to, to pull more readership in. Because for an older established readers like, like you and I, clearly we're, we have, you know, I avoid reading Young Diana just because I do. I'm not interested in it because it's not linked to anything, nor, nor it's just, it's just, like you said, it's too artistically, visually, story-wise. It's just, it doesn't feel connected. And I don't want it to be because it looks so different. And I, I hate to put it that way, but that's just the that's just the harsh truth, you know. Yeah, uh, I agree. Yeah, I I mean, it is yeah. what it is. What it is. Yeah. I mean, they're they're making their decisions, and you know, we don't have any control over that. But it's it's it is frustrating because I don't want to be paying an extra dollar when I don't I don't read those backups. Um, but I mean, there are rare occasions where the backups are really great. Uh, we didn't even talk about the backup in Future State Gotham, which was a reprint of a uh, Adam Hughes Batman Catwoman Slam Bradley story from 2016 that originally appeared in Batman Black and White. Now a lot of those backups in uh, in Future State have all been from Batman Black and White. There's been a couple that have been from Batman Urban Legends that they've reprinted in Black and White. Um, but you know, at least we're getting a story from back in 2016, six years ago, as opposed to some of the stories we've gotten in Future State Gotham that it hadn't even been a year and they're already reprinting it. Um, so at least they're reprinting something that's a little bit older. Um, but that being said, I already owned that story. I'd already read that story. It was nice to be reminded of it and it's Adam Hughes art. So it's great to look at, but at the end of the day, I still think lower the cost, get rid of the backup. So yeah. uh, anyway, let's talk about some of the other collections that are out today. Uh, again, Batman Day, so you're going to have a few things um, that's that are coming out this week that uh, are a little bit different. Um, we've got the Human Target Book One hardcover, so that's uh, Human Target, the regular series returns next week, and we already had the one shot that we talked about last week or the week before. Uh, but if you're looking to get caught up on the first six, six issues, the hardcover's out today. Also, Batman One Dark Knight which was a little bit derivative from Jock, uh, kind of like a taking of Pelham one, two, three or 16 blocks or whatever about Batman trying to get this prisoner from Arkham to Blackgate. Uh, it was, it was pretty solid. It ended up being an emotional story. That's in hardcover. If you're so, if you're curious, uh, detective comics, volume three, Arkham rising, uh, that hardcover is out. Also the Joker presents a puzzle box hardcover. That's a Joker story from Matthew Rosenberg. Harley Quinn, 30 Years of the Maid of Mischief, which collects a different, a bunch of different Harley Quinn stories. Uh, Joker, Harley, Criminal Sanity trade paperback. The hardback of that already came out. This is a Joker Harley story that was from Black Label with amazing, amazing art. I cannot stress how amazing that art was from Miko Sunyan and Jason Badower. It was written by um, Cami Garcia. And it's my favorite Harley story ever. It's much more of a real life Harley. Like Harleen Quinzel is a criminal profiler. The Joker is not the crazy, insane clown prince of crime. He's much more of a traditional serial killer, as horrible as that is. <laughs> oh, he's, he's still a serial killer. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's still a hor- he's still a horrible, evil person. You know, he's not yeah. a good person, whatever. But it's it's much more realistic. Yeah. You know, like you're yeah. never really going to have somebody fall into a, a vat of chemicals at uh, you know some chemical plant and skin turn white and be this cackling uh, Jack Nicholson clown. That's not realistic. The Joker in this book is realistic. 
the choices that Harley uh, that Harleen Quinzel makes going after Joker, uh, it's all rooted in real, you know, criminal science and profiling and that sort of thing. So it's very much like almost like a police procedural type story. Uh, and I just I really enjoyed it. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Uh, also, the most recent Batman Black and White is in trade paperback. The Suicide Squad King Shark story that Tim Seeley did recently is uh, with art by uh, I think it was Howard Porter. No, um, Scott Collins that did the art for uh, for that book. Uh, that's out in trade paperback as well. And then finally, speaking of Cami Garcia, she's written a couple of um, the young adult uh, books for the DC uh, young adult line. One called Teen Titans Raven, one called Teen Titans Beast Boy, and then she wrote a third that brought those two characters together called Beast Boy Loves Raven. And there's a box set that has hardcovers of those three, uh, and the art in those, if I'm not mistaken, is by Gabriel Piccolo. I'm trying to load it, but for some reason my site that I go to doesn't seem to want to load Um yeah, Gabriel Piccolo does the art for for those. So uh, those are the the other books that are out, the collections that are out from DC this week. Um, there also is, um, we, and we we didn't talk about this when it came out, but there is uh, another one of those sort of young adult books. It's called Batman's Mystery Casebook. Um, there is a Batman Day special edition of that that came out a few weeks ago. Now they're they're I don't know re releasing with a Batman Day stamp on it or logo or whatever. Um, and that's sort of, uh, again, aimed at younger readers where you can kind of solve case a case along with Batman, uh, a young Batman, teenage, maybe 11-year-old Batman, I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, so that's out this week as well, celebrating uh, Batman Day. So, uh, all right, book of the week. Uh, well, my book of the week, there really wasn't any contest, to be honest. No- nothing it's even the came Flash, close. wasn't it? Uh, no, it was Batman v. Robin. Really nothing else even came close to it, to be honest with you. Uh, second place, I would go I Am Batman. Third place was Superman, Son of Kal-El. But Batman v. Robin, Mark Wade continues to impress me. So that's, that's my, uh, that's definitely my, my pick of the week. What about yourself? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Lately, we've, we haven't been picking the same book, but typically my pick is your number two. And your pick is my number two. So yeah, I would go, I would go, I am Batman as number one and then Batman versus Robin, um, as my number two, like purely, you know, for emotional reasons, I might go Batman. I I could be persuaded to go Batman to be Robin just for the return of Alfred. But, um, yeah, the, the, the brat man, Damien in there just it sullied it for me a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I rather would have had. Yeah, I rather would have had. You know, sitting here thinking about it a little more, I rather would have had the demon Nezha take over somebody other than Damien, um, or or manifest himself, or just be the villain, you know, straight up himself and not working through somebody else. And I rather would have had Damien open that door and have Alfred there, because in a way the loss of Alfred hit Damien even harder than it hit Bruce based on the fact that he blamed himself for coming into the city when Bane said, you know, don't come into the city and, and that sort of thing. So we, I mean, you made the point that maybe we'll get that emotional moment at some point where, and it'll pull Damien out of the, the mind control or whatever you want to call it. But uh, I kind of rather would have had it just open the door and have it, have it, 
hit that way. Um, but anyway, I'm script yeah. doctoring now, so we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll move on. Uh, any, anything you have coming up this week that you want to share with, uh, everybody? Uh, not, not really. Well, I mean, I, I might review, uh, I do with my DC reviews I do with you. Uh, you and I also probably might, we're probably going to be reviewing at some point. We're probably a little behind. We're going to be reviewing some Scott Snyder, uh, some more best jacket, best jacket press, uh, issues from, uh, uh, Scott Snyder. And, uh, I also do, I review other indie comics with Jim at Weird Science DC. And so, uh, I might do some, I might just do some random, uh, independent comics. I'm really, I've been reading a lot of independents. I've been reading a lot more independents than I've been reviewing. So I might just, I might just throw a couple of random ones in, in the mix this week if I find a few spare moments, but I'm quite busy, you know, but, uh, you know, all things being, uh, considered, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying reading comics. It's a, it's a good time. Uh, what about you? What do you got going on? You got any interviews coming out? Yeah. I mean, I hope everybody got to listen to my interview with Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly last week about Star Trek. Um, right I've always been what I consider a casual Star Trek fan. These guys are so passionate about Star Trek. Yeah. Got me so excited that for years, <laughs> for literal years, I have wanted to get caught up on all the Star Trek stuff. So I, 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 my Star Trek was TNG, the next generation. And I, you know, I had clearly, you know, had grew up with reruns of the original and loved it original mm-hmm. series. Uh, but I, I really fell in love with Star Trek with, um, with next generation. And that was my show. And I was, and then kind of fell off it after next generation. I watched a little bit of Voyager, never watched deep space nine and then kind of fell off. And all these other Star Trek properties have been coming out. I know so many people, who are television writers who've worked on Star Trek properties or are working on Star Trek properties they can't even talk about. You know, mm-hmm. they, they tell me in, in confidence, but, you know, uh, hey, I'm working on this new Star Trek show. Can't really tell you much. Don't say anything to, you know, listeners or whatever. Um, Star Trek has, has grown by leaps and bounds in terms of the amount of content. And I want to get caught up. I want to go back. And so I started, like, during the pandemic, rewatching the original series, and I got through, like, a season and a half. And then I'm just too busy. So talking to Jackson and Colin, it got me all fired up because their Star Trek title, it's just called Star Trek and it touch, it's going to touch on like all eras in a way. And it fits into a certain time period. Go listen to the interview. These guys are clearly passionate. They have me fired up. I want to consume all the Star Trek I can. And for the first time ever, I'm going to be reading a Star Trek comic on a monthly basis. I've read Star Trek comics before. It dipped in and out. But I'm going to be reading who's, this book. On is that IDW? Who's who's publishing it? Yeah, yeah, it's from it's it's IDW, um, and enough. it sounds like they hint at the fact that this could be a whole. I mean, not that IDW doesn't put out multiple Star Trek comics, but they seem to be starting something different. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe a very interconnected. It almost sounds like. Um, comic universe of, of Star Trek, as opposed to previously IDW puts out these Star Trek titles and one of them is over here in this timeline. One of them's in the Kelvin universe, which is the alternate right. timeline for the Chris Pine movie sure. version of Star Trek. Yeah. So they, they just put out these little mini series, three, four or five issues, and it could be from any era, but it sounds like they're trying to start something that's really interconnected, which I find to be fascinating. And again, I want to get caught up because they're, they are such huge Trekkies. They're pulling in, so many different Easter eggs. So the more star, the bigger the Star Trek fan you are, the more you're going to get out of the series. That's not to yeah. say it's not new reader friendly as well, because they're going to do these kind of captain's log type pages that fill in, you in on background yeah. that you need to know. So yeah, I'm really excited for that. Let's go listen to the interview. Uh, and then, yeah, I do have some other interviews coming up, um, but nothing that's set in stone that I can talk about yet or that I want to mention. Cause some of them are out 
next month that I've already got scheduled. So, uh, and then I have been releasing the spawn daily videos, um, for episodes that were recorded already. And then I should have some new spawn, uh, dailies coming up, get back on that horse. Um, and yeah, you mentioned it. We definitely need, we talked about doing it last week. Hopefully we'll find time this week to do the best jacket spotlight for all the um, second issues of Barnstormers and Canary and Dudley Dotson and the Forever Machine, as well as the second issue of um, Dark Space's Wildfire. And then Rocky and I, I keep bugging him. I want to do this unboxing <laughs> video. I'm going to try to show you guys with my camera if you're watching on YouTube. Yeah. Um, if I can... Can you can you see that over there? You can see the the top of the pile. The, the top of the pile, yes, of all those books. Yeah, so that yeah, that's about five feet off the ground. Um, <laughs> that's a stack of of like stuff I've gotten off eBay and the CGC collector forums. Um, we should do a live unboxing. We'll do a live unboxing. Yeah, on a that's what I'm saying. We need to do a live unboxing because <laughs> at this point, at this point. I don't even know what's in those boxes. <laughs> I, I've ordered so much stuff over the past two years. Uh, um, and then it comes in and I just stick it on the pile and say, I'm going to get to it. And now it's gotten to be such a big thing. It's like, I'm going to be as surprised as you guys when I open the stuff up. And I just think it would be fun to do a live <laughs> unboxing and go, oh, yeah, this right. is the reason I bought this. This is the reason. I, and there's probably a lot of – there's going to be a lot of repeats, you know, like some of the issues I probably bought like five of them, you know, from various – sellers on ebay just because i was speculating on it so yeah. yeah one of these days we'll do that we'll uh we'll crack open some drinks and we'll we'll unbox yeah. that and, and i, yeah. I want to give a public thank you to you chase uh you sent me you got me i did get my signed copy it's it's unfortunately it's downstairs right now because i just i i picked it up in the mailbox uh i signed copy of batman uh, one bad day with the riddler signed by mitch garrard's uh, thank you for that. That was that was awesome. I'll show it off uh, next week when we do our DC uh, podcast. So, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, glad I could glad I could help out. See, with that I'm like and... you. I don't wait a year before I open comics that I get in the mail. <laughs> I'm not going to wait till I get a five foot high. So, I tell you, some of that stuff. Some of that stuff has been there over a year, like over a year. Like some of that stuff's from late 2020. You better you um, better hope that some of the some of the people that sent you that stuff don't see that they're going to get all offended. Uh, you know, here's the thing. Like once the pile started, once the pile got to a certain point, I was like, okay, I'm going to do an unboxing. I'm going to do a live unboxing. And so now I haven't wanted to open anything for that reason. But yeah, it's going to be fun when we do it because again, I'll be surprised by some of the stuff. Some, I'm sure some of the stuff will be like, why did I buy this? Um, but yeah, we promise we won't get too drunk when we do it. And I imagine even though that's a giant pile, I'm sure we could do it in less than 30 minutes. We, we, we're just, not we, we just won't read them. Gonna, yeah. We're not going to pull a Dale Keown on you and, and pass out in front of the camera. Uh, <laughs> and if you don't know what I'm talking about, then more power to you. So yeah, anyway, uh, we've rambled long enough. We appreciate everybody joining us as always. I, I apologize. I know I was a bit more negative, but yeah, this week, uh, it just had some stuff. It happens. It happens. It had some stuff that just really didn't, yeah. didn't wow me. Um, so anyway, that does it for this episode. We appreciate you joining us as always. Don't forget if you're listening to the audio only head over to YouTube. If you watch the, uh, spotlights there you can see the great artwork and fantastic covers you can see rocky and my smiling face be sure if you head over there that you subscribe to the channel like subscribe comment on the video all that stuff it's comic space boom exclamation point to find rocky's channel and conversely if you always check us out on youtube and you want to be sure you don't miss out on any of the other audio content just go to wherever you get your podcast to search for the comic source and subscribe so that's gonna do it for this episode we appreciate your support as always and we'll talk to you next time see you later 
You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.